of such great powers or beings, there may be conceivably a survival, a survival of a hugely remote period when consciousness was manifested, perhaps, in shapes and forms long since withdrawn before the tide of advancing humanity, forms of which poetry and legend alone have caught a flying memory and called them gods, monsters, mythical beings of all sorts and kinds. Algernon Blackwood The most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. We live on a placid island of ignorance, in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. The sciences, each straining in its own direction, have hitherto harmed us little. But someday, the piecing together of dissociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality and of our frightful position therein that we shall either go mad from the revelation or flee from the deadly light into the peace and safety of a new dark age. At the signal, time will be out of joint. Hello and welcome to Weird Signal, the podcast about all things eerie, weird and hauntological. I'm Sean and as ever I'm joined today by Lucy. Hello. This month we're taking a slightly different tack, though we'll be back on our bullshit film-wise soon enough. We are taking a deep dive into the themes of queerness in Lovecraftian horror. Yeah, basically it's Pride Month, we're doing Cthulhu. We're doing Cthulhu, the gayest of the things. Yes, and I think um, on that note, though, we wanted to start with a brief kind of, I guess, academic caveat, which is that we are aware of the scholarly pitfalls involved in trying to retcon the sexuality of a historical figure or extrapolate thereupon. However, you know, we felt this was something justifiable because, well, for a couple of reasons. One, because um, Lovecraftian fiction despite what we what we uh, historically know of the character of H.P. Lovecraft, it has become an effectively queer space with uh, some very good and inf- interesting queer writers doing very interesting things with the um, with the kind of te- with the with the foundational kind of qualities of Lovecraft's work. And you know, it's it's something that has become an interesting territory be, uh, because it enables people to explore ideas of stuff like um, alienation, existential fear, radical difference, and the liberatory power of the monstrous, um, which is you know which is ample territory for this kind of exploration. Um, but as well as that, uh, we also found it kind of we also found the fact that there are some inherently queer readings possible both on a direct level and a more um, critical level present in the original body of of H.P. Lovecraft's work, uh, which makes this not just kind of justifiable, but I think necessary. So in short, we aren't going to exactly be embarking on the kind of, you know, erotic psychopathology of the historical figure that is Howard Phillips Lovecraft of Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, Instead, our object is to try and establish um, how the notion of queerness or the experience of queerness appears in the body of work 
of you know Lovecraft's body of work. But also we are going to be embarking on some sort of like biographical excursions here. We're not quite we're not exact we're not cutting off Lovecraft the man from our queer analysis of his work. What we're more looking for are the places where there's an odd sort of queer interaction between Lovecraft himself and the the mythos and the surrounding work. Yeah, and it's basically I think there's a certain degree of openness for interpretation around this and a lot of room for um, for speculation simply because the picture of the historical Lovecraft we have is kind of a conflicted one, you know, because you know, we um, I think, you know, we've it's been pretty well established that he was massively racist and very problematic on that level uh, on that on that point. But um, as despite his um, kind of rampant xenophobia, he did marry a Ukrainian Jewish woman. Um, and also there's a point that comes up in uh, Mikhail Welbeck, who we'll be bringing up a lot, I think, in this episode. Um, he points out that it's like we have this idea of him as this isolated misanthrope who scorned all humanity and just lived in um, lived in seclusion with his mother in Providence, his hometown. Um, but at the same time, he was, um, by all accounts, quite a friendly figure and could could just never bring himself not to respond to a letter from people, even, you know, even like very strange people who sometimes got in touch with him. Um but also, also we have um, we have certain ambiguities about his sexuality, which we're obviously going to go into. The fact that he was described as an adequately excellent lover, uh, whatever that means, by Sonia Green, um, and also just the idea that he's someone who we have this vision of him as a cosmic pessimist um, with these you know vast dark visions. But at the same time, he was an extremely sentimental man and wrote a lot about um, just his love of um, rural New England. There's a quote from um, Michelle Welbeck's book-long essay, um, H.P. Lovecraft, Against the World, Against Life. And you'll recognise this quote if you've seen H. Bomber Guy's excellent video about um, H.P. Lovecraft, which um, go and go and watch it. It's really, really good, but not until you finish listening to his podcast, good <laughs> listener, uh, where he says... Paradoxically, Lovecraft's character is fascinating in part because his values were so entirely opposite to ours. He was fundamentally racist, openly reactionary, he glorified puritanical inhibitions and evidently found all direct erotic manifestations repulsive, a point we're going to be returning to later. Res resolutely anti-commercial, he despised money, considered democracy to be an idiocy and progress to be an illusion. The word freedom, so cherished by Americans, prompted only a sad, derisive guffaw. Throughout his life, he maintained a typically aristocratic, scornful attitude toward humanity in general, coupled with extreme kindness towards individuals in particular. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, he was, um, I mean, he was just really weird. Yeah. Like, honestly, as a guy, like, he mean, I, like, definitely we're not the first people to have said this, but H.P. Lovecraft does feel a lot like a character in an H.P. Lovecraft story. Yeah. Partly that's because all of, almost all of his characters are very obvious kind of like um, reflections of an idealised version of himself because Lovecraft desperately wanted to be an academic but did not have the disposition towards the kind of, you know, sort of like um, stress that that actually uh, would involve. He So he was very, he was very learned but also extremely um, lacking in any kind of like confidence in his own abilities as a scholar or as a writer. He would often 
sort of like almost actively sabotage his own work he would um he would only sell really he would only sell stories because his friends would make him mm. because they would say oh howard these are good people might like to read them because he had this bizarre notion that it was ungentlemanly to make money from writing so he would uh he would send uh so when he would submit a story to a paper uh, to a, a magazine rather he would include a list of magazines that had already rejected it <laughs> and would say and incidentally if you're going to change anything and i do mean anything even a single apostrophe or a comma then please just don't publish it i'm quite all right <laughs> without getting any money for this he would if he didn't get money from an invoice he just wouldn't send another invoice because <laughs> he felt rude asking for it he had um he was his own worst enemy yeah. in so many ways and the tragic thing is that the stories he was at that point in his life when he was so deeply reticent about trying to get anything published was when he was writing what are objectively his best works mm. and when he was also like chronically malnourished yeah for he, the lack of money yeah Welbeck points out that um the modest um, inheritance that he actually had from the death of his uh, parents was almost entirely extinguished at the moment of his death like well Welbeck suggests it's almost as if sort of like he had an allotted like numerically calculated period of existence mm -hmm. which just came to a conclusion and then he died of a horrible cancer of the stomach so yeah, um, I think like one one kind of caveat, well not caveat, but one one thing I would raise, um, which you know it's totally true that he um, was very very kind of negative and very sort of self-abnegating and self-effacing about his own work. But Call of Cthulhu kind of has a, it's like the one story of his that's entirely his that he takes kind of a different tact with, in that he I think he got rejected by Weird Tales and then he actually followed up saying like no this is the story this is the thing like please reconsider this and that's like the only time he did that that's interesting um, i didn't know that he ne yeah he never made the cover story of, of um weird tales even though pretty much the only reason anyone knows like most people know about weird tales is because of him ironically yeah. it's um it's interesting as well because um call of cthulhu because we um, i reread it as um prep for uh, this episode and i think compared with some of the other um so like great texts as Welbeck calls them um i think is actually quite weak compared to some of the others in terms of uh stylistically speaking because it is it's a very archetypal lovecraftian tale in that it's just adjective after adjective <laughs> um it's his most it's i mean what we also see, though, at this point in his writing with Call of Cthulhu is he is writing much more complicated stories now mm. compared with his earlier work, which were relative, had sort of like they're good, but they have relatively simple plots. But here we have a very multi, well, not exactly multifaceted, it's not really, but we have a much bigger picture of like something like the story is the slow piecing together of an image. Um, in the which in the which are done very well. But I think there are, I think some of his other great text tales are better i think mm. uh color out of space has a very good claim to being his probably perhaps his strongest work but this right. is a little bit um, i think well i think color out of space subjective. yeah color out of space is interesting because that's when actually that's something i want to bring up in a minute actually but um but yeah color like he had different stories where he went a bit experimental on things like some of the ones where it's very first person he presents in like a more kind of conversational tone and that's where it gets interesting something something like pickman's model it's some P pickman's model or the hound it's like it's like someone kind of being interrogated over a thing and there's and there's that kind of uncertainty that arises from that that we kind of we don't get as much in call of cthulhu but um just thinking on that on the idea of like the 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 multi 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 level effect of um of call of cthulhu the complexity of it i actually saw 
over a decade now at this point, a talk uh, by China Mievel at um, University of East Anglia, where, where we both met. Uh, <laughs> Canon, Canon, weird signal history there. But um, but yeah, he was talking, he was in a debate with this other guy who I've completely forgotten or more or less erased from my mind about <laughs> minimalism versus maximalism. And he was very on the side of maximalism. And he basically just held up, um, he held up the Call of Cthulhu as, um, as the ideal model for conveying the cosmic horror, which we're going to go into a little bit later, um, the, the principle of cosmic horror, in that it's it's that great chain of things that um, have to have to necessarily make themselves present because there is something so vast in the cosmos that it breaks through all cognitive boundaries um, of like chance or comprehension to reach the minds of mortals. There's wonderful like um, although although like yeah, because obviously it is great, it is brilliant, and especially when we actually get to relay and we actually meet Cthulhu uh meet so to speak but um the uh all of the it's just it's just fantastic just because of how nothing really makes sense anymore like he like the um they're not even certain if they're what angle they're standing at now they're not certain if like the great door they find behind which Cthulhu lies is horizontal or vertical because they actually got, yeah. they actually don't know so because they don't know how if their purpose like their angle in relation to the sea is it's, now because it's just it's built with a different kind of mathematics it's just warping physics around it's it. like something I, I think there's a very important kind of formal point to be made about Lovecraft's weirdness or the, the concept of his weird fiction it's people talk about kind of how Lovecraft was an unsubtle writer or that there was some kind of lack of subtlety in it. Um, well, 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 it's a difficult one because like people say, actually no, it was uh, Alan Moore um, gave that, not Alan Moore, shit, no, Michael Moorcock, the other big bearded, <laughs> the other big bearded fantasy writer um, <laughs> said, well not fantasy, you know, writer, sci-fi, genre fiction. British genreman. Yes, um, one of the many people to have a fight with, um, what is it, that, that bald guy. With Grant Morrison. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, but he, he described him as that most inadequate explainer, of, that, the most inadequate describer of the indescribable. But that's, that is, while he was sort of putting Lovecraft down at that point, that's kind of the power of Lovecraft, because it's like, he lists everything, he goes into great amounts of detail and very explicit detail, just to outline the the magnitude of the failure of human comprehension to deal with the things it's seeing. Yes, there's a philosopher called uh, Graham Harmon who's aligned with the various caveats about it being questionable if there's actually such a movement to speculative realism, but is generally described as being aligned with the speculative realist movement and has posited a uh, an ontology which he calls object-oriented ontology. I'm not going to go into too much detail about it, and, and full disclosure, I mean, I'm ever so slightly iffy about speculative realism for philosophical <laughs> reasons, but he finds Lovecraft useful precisely because something that... Um, Harmon posits, which I do find quite an interesting uh, philosophical idea, is the notion that there's a kind of an inexhaustibility to things, to beings, that um, uh, that there is a an, an element whereby one can never have a complete and total explanation or description of something, but there's always a retreat beyond our ability to grasp something into a murky, luminal realm where we can't really speak of it. Uh, and he finds uh, Lovecraft interesting precisely because of that, because Lovecraft embarks on these lengthy, lengthy attempts to describe things which are fundamentally indescribable. And exactly as you just said, Lucy, and you sort of 
encounter the failure of language and the failure of cognition in these moments. Mm. Um, and Welbeck as well posits that one of the um, genuine kind of like stylistic innovations that Lovecraft does come up with is the use of scientific language to try and describe things. Which scientific language, which he was very, very up to date on, mm. you know, because like, he was as well as being a horror writer, he was just an amateur journalist. He would just write whatever sprang to his interest, uh, or he sprang to mind to, that interested him. And so he wrote lots of papers about physics and astrology, and astronomy, rather. Um, but, yeah, it's, that's kind of... Yeah, and, 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 then, and then he employs this very well, um, just precisely to do that, to, um, to just, like, raise the stakes of further failures, I guess. Just to give you an example of the kind of scientific language that uh, Lovecraft would use, this is how in At the Mountains of Madness an attempt is made to describe in anatomical detail uh, a several million upon million years old extraterrestrial entity discovered in Antarctica. Ahem. Five slightly longer reddish tubes start from inner angles of a starship-shaped head and end in sac-like swellings of same colour which upon pressure open to bell-shaped orifices two inches maximum diameter and lined with sharp white tooth-light projections. Probable mouths. All these tubes, cilia and points of starship head found folded tightly down. Tubes and points cling into bulbous neck and torso. Flexibility surprising despite vast toughness. Um, but I think just kind of coming back to that and... Um kind of just to rein this into to the main thesis uh, that we wanted to talk about. It's um, where do we where do we place the sexual, you know, coming back to the, the central thesis of the fundamental or perhaps fundamental Lovecraftian queerness. Um, it's I think perhaps the most striking thing you mentioned is that noumenal realm of the kind of beyond and the indescribable, because I think this is this is going to be something that we're going to be returning to throughout the episode. But to me, at least, um, that is for Lovecraft where queerness resides, um, and but but I think that that that's a that's a that's a statement that's going to necessitate a lot of unpacking. Um, but I think there's just like there's one point we need to make up front, returning to my kind of caveat from earlier, which is the idea of like speculating about Lovecraft's sexuality because there is a there's a fundamental split in um, how much sexuality was actually present in that, um, which, um, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But, um, but I think the, before we can actually describe that, we need to just hammer home the fundamentals of what the Lovecraftian worldview is um, and what the, you know, um, how, how it can be conceived and the language we need to use around Lovecraft in order to articulate that point. Um, because his attitudes towards sexuality, both um, conscious and perhaps unconscious, are so heavily tied with the idea of the Lovecraftian cosmos. And when I say Lovecraftian cosmos, I mean the, the concept of the mythos uh, that is the cumulative effect of his fictions. Um, so we've kind of, we've tried to hammer out, um, well, Sean has very helpfully hammered out some like basic tenets of what what the official line from Weird Signal is about um, the love of, of Lovecraftian horror in a cosmic sense. Yes, so I th uh, there is a tendency, I think, of people to associate Lovecraftian horror 
with certain features which are ultimately somewhat incidental to it, uh, the cult, the indescribable entity, the monster from ancient times, and so on. So what I'm sort of positing here are four fundamental axioms of what make Lovecraftian horror actually distinct. These are, one, fundamental indifference of the cosmos, neither cruel nor capricious, neither benevolent, though lacking a telos. The cosmos simply is. A quote from Lovecraft on this matter. There are no absolute values in the whole blind tragedy of mechanistic nature. Nothing is either good or bad except as judged from, a, from an absurdly limited point of view. The only cosmic reality is mindless, undeviating fate. Automatic, unmoral, uncalculating inevitability. Uh, where does that quote appear? That is actually from his essay on Nietzsche. Oh, okay. So what's um, significant about about that, and actually the second quote you're going to hear in a moment is from the same essay, is that isn't from a story. That's from some scholarship of Lovecraft. So that's something he wrote intent not to be taken as fiction, but as a truth statement about the universe. This is actually reflect, and this is kind of what we mean almost about the intersection between Lovecraft, the man, and the work that he produced and that it does reflect him and his worldview mm. there isn't a sharp contrast there at all there, there is this he is expressing his ideas about the world in his fiction second axiom precarity of the human world in this context the human world can mean civilization as such a particular society or community, a particular habitation or home, or even a particular individual's world, i.e. their beliefs, comprehensions, what they think they know, and so on. Quote, There is no such thing, there never will be such a thing, as good and permanent government among the crawling, miserable vermin called human beings. Again, this is from a piece of Lovecraft's scholarly work. This is and specifically he's talking about the question of government and the inevitable precarity of government. But again, here we do see something that appears throughout his fiction, the notion that all the things that human beings have created, they create in the context of this vast, infinite, eternal, uncaring universe in which all of this will also collapse. And indeed, its precarity, its contingency is built into it by necessity. The, necessar the necessarily contingent character of all things. Axiom 3. Existence of non-human agents. The human world is not the... The human is not the only agent in the cosmos. Beyond the boundaries of the human world, however conceived, there are agents which are autonomous of the human. Um, God, what's the horror philosophy chap's name? Oh, fuck. Eugene Thacker. Oh, okay, yeah, Eugene yeah. Thacker. This is something actually a point that Eugene Thacker explores in his series, The uh, Horror of Philosophy. Uh, the notion that um, no, the, the the dawning realization that there are forces that exist in the universe which directly impact upon the human, which which are autonomous of the human or independent of it in terms of volition. For example, you know, ecology, uh, pathogens, and and maybe even some of the manifestations of our technological society are things that are autonomous of us and yet act on us, or at least aren't controllable by us. Uh, axiom for the influence of non-human agents upon the human world. 
the precarious human world is acted upon by these non-human agents, either directly or indirectly. And these last, last two points have a fantastic, fantastic um, expression in Lovecraft's fiction. This is from his story, The Dunwich Horror, and this is a quotation from the dread Necronomicon of Abdul al-Khazred. <clears throat> Nor is it to be thought that man is either the oldest or the last of Earth's masters, or that the common bulk of life and substance walks alone. The old ones were... The old ones are, and the old ones shall be. Not in the spaces we know, but between them. They walk serene and primal, undimensioned and to us unseen. Yog Sothoth knows the gate. Yog Sothoth is the gate. Yog Sothoth is the key and guardian of the gate. Past, present, future. All are one in Yog Sothoth. He knows where the old ones broke through of old and where they shall break through again. By their smell can men sometimes know them near, but of them, but of their semblance can no man know, save only in the features of those they have begotten on mankind, and of those are there many sorts, differing in likeness from man's truest eidolon to that shape without sight or substance which is them. They bend the forest and crush the city, yet may not forest or city behold the hand that smites. Man rules now where they ruled once. They shall soon rule where man rules now. After summer is winter, and after winter summer. They wait patient and potent, for here shall they reign again. Chin chin. Chin chin. So at this point, I'm going to go ahead and stake my claim that adequately excellent lover means um, has no problem getting it up, but a lot of difficulty finishing. That's curious take, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Over. Well, as in like kind of uh, cognitive uh, dissociation from um, one's own um, sexuality. I don't. Know. Well, I mean, this is this is um, the point that needs a little bit um, a little bit of unpacking but thankfully we've got quite a good model to work from here um <laughs> which is so so yeah we got the, there's there is an ambiguity around lovecraft's work in that it appears on one level entirely sexless but on another extremely sexual and this is something that's arisen basically in the body of post posthumous posthumous Lovecraftian scholarship ever since, and it's typified by two very, very different figures, one being Michelle Welbeck, who we've mentioned a couple of times before, and the other one being Alan Moore. Yes, so a lot of people I found when you um, engage with them about Lovecraft will often at some point make some kind of statement about how Lovecraft's fiction is just a sublimation of his repressed uh, sexuality. And this is a very popular, this is a very popular reading. And, it's, and it is like, um, as Lucy's already said, it's this notion that because there is, for the most part, but again, this is something we're going to unpack, although for the, because for the most part, there is an absence of direct um, interaction or exploration of the sexual in Lovecraft's work, it being therefore assumed in a kind of pseudo-Freudian manner that uh, will therefore everything that Lovecraft wrote about is sexual because if it's the thing he's not talking about therefore it has to be the thing he's really talking about mm. so um and we're talking about this and so like, in order just to give us kind of like a model to talk about this we're kind of like 
pitching Mrs. Alamore versus Michelle Welbeck. Obviously, it's more complicated than that, mm. but that's how we're going to be talking about it for our purposes. Yeah. So that reading of uh, Lovecraft's work as being simply an expression of his sublimated sexual desires has kind of like been uh, typified in some ways by Alan Moore's sort of like Lovecraftian horror. Uh, his writings, which kind of like take Lovecraft as their starting point and then kind of expand upon that and go beyond that. One thing I want to flag up is there is a very good anthology of uh, Lovecraft tribute fiction, which was actually my first, um, the first book I got after I'd finished all the Lovecraft as a 17 year old <laughs> and was like, shit, I need more. And then the first thing I came across was a anthology called The Starry Wisdom, which was edited by a chap called D.M. Mitchell, um, which, which amongst various other things contains the story The Courtyard, which then became the graphic novel The Courtyard uh, by Alan Moore. Uh, which the, you know, the which short then, story was also by Alan Moore, uh, which then became Providence. Which then, no, which then became Neonomicon. Oh shit! Yeah, no, you're right. Providence a is a very yeah. different thing. But um, but this is I don't know. This is an interesting thing to, I wanted to bring up because it's. I think we could do an entire episode on this anthology because it's. It, if you want an example of like peak Lovecraftian scholarship where the sexuality is all there, just go to this. It was like it was it was in the like 1990s, uh, and it was a retroactive like um sort of dm mitchell does a very good job of just going back through um just any all kinds of horror fiction following lovecraft's death to trace not things that were written necessarily explicitly as lovecraft tributes but things that he identified his fundamental association with the lovecraftian um and so he pulls up things like um there's a william s burroughs story in there there's there's some you know classic stuff like brian lumley who is one of the more explicit ones um there's a guy called Robert M. Price, who I think is actually like a theologian, who then also um, who then also talks about um, Lovecraft in in the in a religious context, and that was he was actually the one uh, whose name I couldn't remember. Uh, yeah, during... I, I know about this guy by reputation. He, yeah, he's an atheist Christian. Okay, right. So he's like sort of like. <laughs> he's he's a Levian with a fucking cassock. <laughs> uh, I this is like like to go on a completely tangential note here. I'm actually almost like slightly disappointed with myself, like how like genuinely just orthodox my a lot of my theology actually not orthodox with a big over for this. Like just like I'm very I'm just very Nicene Creed guys, you know. It's sort of like no, of course Jesus exists, and of course he's the incarnate deity in his fullness. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he's pals of um uh Yoshi. Ah, yeah. Ah, oh, uh. Josh. Oh, I don't know if it's Yoshi or Joshi. Actually, I've been saying Yoshi, but that's because that of... might be that might be us. Like, not the not the Mario dinosaur. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know. This is just like very very good. But like the Robert M. Price story is basically about a guy joining a kind of sex cult um, that he then has to perform an increasingly depraved series of sexual acts as uh, up, like kind of uptick of like extremity of uh, initiation rites. But um, but yeah, this is this is kind of like this is the this is the scene Alan Moore is emerging out of. But I mean, one thing I would bring up, and I think this is actually realizing now as I say it, I think I learned this information from an Alan Moore story rather than a historic source. But I think it's true that um, so it's known that his parents both died while um, suffering from extreme mental, you know, extremely heightened um, states of mental illness, um, and I think it's Michael Welbeck actually. Michelle Welbeck actually points out that um, it's unclear what the cause of his father's um, uh, malady was, but I think he, he brings up the fact that he was a travelling salesman, and as a travelling salesman, 
the, the, the old stereotype is that they sleep around a lot, you know, it's like, it's like milkman, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and so his, his extrapolation on that was like almost certainly syphilis. But it's in the uh, Lovecraft story that when um, when his father was in um, in the Alan Moore story, uh, when his father was in the throes of syphilitic dementia, he would scream out of his hospital window, the devil is having sex with my wife um, and try and get people to stop it or something. And even if even if, um, you know, even if we want to take a kind of like um, uh, a straight, you know, completely straight um interpretation of Lovecraft's attitude to sex that's if that's true that's got to account for something yeah that's gonna fuck <laughs> that's you up that's a pretty up, yeah. extreme sexual cognitive pathology yeah the um there's also yeah there's actually if you do want to um look there's um that particular short story of Alan Moore what's it called because it is in there uh, recognition recognition um in the collection uh oh, what's it called Yogoth Growths and Other Cultures it's just a really lovely kind of collection of Alamore miscellanea. Mm. Some of those, like that story, actually, he does, like he has just had that made into a comic in that, which is really, mm. really good and nasty. That's a, like if shit. It, no, that's where I had it. Like, yeah, that was but, the thing. That's how I found out about Lovecraft. I was drawn by the. I think I just saw pictures of like Mygo fungus flying, and I was like, "What yeah. the fuck is this?" Yeah, Yogoth like, yeah. growth and other cultures is just really good if you like Alan Moore, as mm. as I do. Like, yeah. just, just like I'm not dunking Alan Moore here. I have, I just, I. Have, this will come to our certain disagreements with his, with his like take on Lovecraft. Like he is good. He does have the reputation that he has for a reason. He's brilliant. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so actually, just going directly into that. Um, so more in his Lovecraftian work is very much of that angle. The idea that you know, because like because Lovecraft doesn't talk about fucking, everything's about fucking. Uh, and this and the notion here being that whenever Lovecraft in his stories talks about unspeakable rights and so on. These are sexual acts being alluded to, but it's almost as if Lovecraft can't actually depict these explicitly in case he tastes vomit in his mouth and a hard on in his pants almost, right? Mm. Uh, not that he would taste it Adequately in his pants. Excellent. Adequately excellent. So um, we've already mentioned them in passing, but I'm going to talk a little bit more about the comic books that Elamore has specifically written in his Lovecraftian kind of like thing. So expanded mythos, expanded mythos. So there is Neonomicon and its prequel Providence. Neonomicon incorporates uh, the courtyard, which, like we already said, was originally a standalone short story. And which is was brilliant. Is can I just say? So good. And it then becomes, and then it became a, a comic book um, illustrated by, uh, drawn rather made comicified by uh, Jason Jack and Burrows. I think it's Jason. It's spelled J A C E N. So. Not, I think that's Jason. Jason, Jason Burrows. Uh, I think it's Burrows. God, I should check this before. Yeah. I'm sorry. I even read it again recently. <laughs> so. uh, but then that became incorporated into a limited series called Neonomicon. Uh, and like, it's, which is really solid. And it's really messed up. Like, it's very uh, upsetting. It's very upsetting. Like actually the caveat with all of the Lovecraft, all of animals Lovecraftian stuff is it does, there's a lot of sexual violence in it. It's very nasty, and there's all sorts of questions about how okay that is for him to do. I'm still on the fence about if I think it is gratuitous, if I think it does serve a point. I certainly think there's stuff in Providence which did not need to be there. He's an edgy boy. He's an edgy boy. Uh, so what we have in um, Neonomicon. So Neonomicon follows an FBI investigation into a series of crimes which are apparently influenced by the works of H.P. Lovecraft. Not like... Lovecraftian theme, well, well, obviously Lovecraftian themes, but 
explicitly Harold Phillips Lovecraft existed in this world and it isn't our world like there's like it's set contemporary but there's tech which isn't there and like history's clear it's not our history like um there's like there was an invasion of Syria in the 90s there's domes over the cities and stuff it do and, and it does work I also say sometimes it's I so do weird, like this it doesn't work. really set up the domes it's just like oh there's domes now yeah it's great <laughs> um yeah so and it follows this FBI investigation into these like violent murders where the connecting factor is these people who are really into HP Lovecraft and Providence is uh, a prequel to the set in the 20s um, I really like Providence I've already said like these are really good I do want to just say again I really like what Moore did in Providence despite the problems I do have with some of the stuff he does some of the directions that he decides to go in which I don't want to go into too much detail about it in case you want to read it because it is good. I think it's a bit difficult to get hold of. I think there was only a limited run of the trade paperbacks for some dumb reason, but if you can read it, do. Uh, and some of the nasty things, there is this almost this notion actually that it feels like he kind of pulls a bit away from it after he does it, almost kind of like thinking that maybe he shouldn't have gone there. But anyway. Alan Moore has uh, a habit of going there. He does have a habit of going there, but Providence follows uh, a journal, a freelance journalist called Robert Black, who is uh, gay and Jewish. Also, Two things yeah. that H.P. <laughs> Lovecraft was not very keen on, who, in his desire to try and map out the underworld of America, kind of starts stumbling onto the real life shit, which he writes about and then when he finally meets Howard Phillips Lovecraft, the Providence Road Island, tells him about him as kind of acts of the inspiration for Lovecraft's own stories. Mm -hmm. So what we have are uh, in Providence is Alan Moore essentially kind of like doing these odd rewrites of Lovecraftian stories. But because he's kind of severed them directly from Lovecraft by having them, these are the real events that inspire him, going in his own direction. And the direction he goes in is explicitly extremely sexual. Uh, the There's... Um, and... I mean, what? do we want to talk about what the woman has sex with? <laughs> Were you gonna? Because I think that's... Well, in, the, in what bit? The Dumbwich Horror thing? Uh, no, not in the Dumbwich Horror one. In, are you talking about Providence or the or Neonomicon? I'll talk about... Well, let's talk about Neonomicon. Because, oh, because in Providence, like, she um, in basically is brought into... No, it's in, in Neonomicon. In Neonomicon, she is brought in, like, locked in... Uh, a female investigator is locked in a room with a very, very randy fish person. But yeah, with a, with a deep one. Who, that's it. Yeah, who... Yeah. Who, who who sexually assaults her repeatedly and it's really horrible and that's like that's what i mean by like <laughs> i'm not sure how like it's good but at the same time for god's sake alan come on uh at some points of this but yeah anyway the reason i'm talking about this is because we have here an exemplification of that reading of lovecraft the idea that all the nameless rights all the horrible monsters everything is lovecraft not being able to fully cognizize eroticism in any in any sense other than it being disgusting and violent and awful yeah i mean one point so lucy yeah. just raised her hand there as if we were in class and i just pointed to her and said, oh yes didn't want to interrupt but like <laughs> i just thought I'd, like one thing i wanted to bring up which is which is connected to this in the the um the the anthology we were talking about just a moment ago the starry wisdom um which you know the the first bit of uh, what would become this uh, series we're talking about appeared in um, contains a story by uh, Michael Gyra of the band Swans. Um, oh, fuck yeah. And the, the story is entirely in caps lock and it's called Extracted from the Mouth of the Consumer, Rotting Pig. And it just like, 
I, I was looking over again. I was like, huh, the sex in your soul will damn you to hell. Mine was a deeply upsetting story to read from a deeply upsetting guy who... For classic New York No Wave band. Check him out. Yeah. I mean, I imagine I just... literally oh, every I... single one of our listeners... Everyone probably knows. listened to a Swans album. At yeah, some point. they were kind of like, I don't Swans. To, I I can't listen to Swans anymore because of well the horrible because you know the sex assault uh-huh. he did. Not that like Miracle I'm the victim of love here. is one of mine and Min's songs. Don't uh, don't tell me this. Yeah, that was yeah yeah. He's a bad man and by obviously not doing the whole aren't I the real victim here because I can't enjoy his music <laughs> thing. But sort of like that was actually like that was a proper kind of like genuine lesson for me. Sort of like. No, you. There is a massive limit to how you much you can separate artists from art mm. here. Like, no, he sort of no, he's a piece of shit. My dividing line is that it's okay if they're dead, and Lovecraft is very dead. He's very dead. Like, no, like it's okay to like Lovecraft. That's something that St. Yoshi actually gets very defensive about. Like, he calls people who are in any sense critical of Lovecraft. Cucks. Might as well, really. He calls them just calls them Lovecraft haters. That's why he hates Laird Baron, whom we both fucking love. Yeah, shout out to the boy. Yeah, Lair Baron. If there's any chance Lair Baron is listening to this, we really like your stories. Please write more horror stories, but also we respect your independence and integrity as an artist, and please yeah. go where the muse takes you. I've not read your crime stuff, I'm sure it's great. <laughs> Don't know why I'm saying that. Anyway, Lair Baron's great. But yeah, Yoshi gets very, very defensive about people who are in any sense critical of Lovecraft's work because of the guy's reactionary racist worldview which is like not even not even in the sense of saying that we shouldn't read it like also there's just people who say that well you know maybe we shouldn't have lovecraft's face on the award we give to people for doing good fantasy work because he was a massive racist but there's a very easy solution to that have it make it cthulhu the man's work not the man done but anyway, anyway what, are we, what are we? I don't what, know. What is the counterpoint to Alan Moore? The counterpoint to Alan Moore is Michelle Welbeck. Right. We've <laughs> well done. <laughs> wellity, 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 Monsieur Welbeck. Um. <laughs> Did you see the thing? It was talked about on Trash Future, uh, where like I think it was like Alan uh, Michelle Welbeck got married to a. I think it was like he, they put they flagged up there was something like. He married a Japanese woman and went to the and the, went, conducted the wedding wearing a trilby. And someone pointed out that he's just become like kind of the gamer Nietzschean Superman. <laughs> and I think it was Milo Edwards described him as described her as a Hollaback girl <laughs> because they didn't know how Wellbeck was pronounced, <laughs> which is forgivable. Uh, I I assumed it was Ulibich. I, I used to say Ulibich in a kind of like really overt French accent before I found out it was Wellbeck, which is a, <laughs> it kind of feels like, I don't know, it feels like his name is just a bit of a fuck you to people who don't speak French because it's just so count, counterintuitive how you put it. Oh, the H, what, the H like- is pronounced W in French now or in this name. I don't speak French. Um, God, where the hell were we? Contrary to this, right? Contrary to this. Contra Contra in, in contrast to this analysis of Lovecraft's work as being profoundly erotic because of its anerotic, you know, exterior, is Welbeck's reading, which kind of takes Lovecraft on face value here as no, its aneroticism is because it's not erotic there's nothing there isn't an engagement with the erotic here on any level there is not a sublimated eroticism to lovecraft's work as far as Welbeck is concerned no there is no erotic dimension to it um, and well i yeah i mean the the thing i would flag up about that is the fact that like 
we can believe that because maybe this was just part, you know, human sexuality was part of the all too human world, which he just had no interest in. You know, exactly. it, was, it was just mundane shit that's going to be shattered into a million pieces by the by the fucking Numina he's channeled. Yeah, because so what Welbeck states is because like Lovecraft is very insistent that above everything else, he is not a realist. He has did not like realist literature. He did not want to try and replicate realist like forms in his work, which is interesting considering like how like in he got to, you know with with with, a, with um, scientific descriptions and scientific like uh, ideas being explored in his work, but kind of like aesthetically speaking. He just doesn't, he's no interest in realism because the world is awful. <laughs> uh, so he wants it to, to have this kind of big picture weird shit going on. And and in, and what he kind of like states is, what Lovecraft states is that what interests him when he talks about human beings are the things that make them different. He's interested in the faculties that the human possesses which make the human distinct from other animals. And what Lovecraft states is, if, states is that, look, sexuality, amorous couplings, whatever you want to call them, are one of the things we share with the animals. And Lovecraft, for that reason, you know, according to Welbeck at least, that's why Lovecraft has no artistic interest in it. So no, I'm interested in the human as human and the things that make us different. And for Lovecraft, the thing that it makes us most profoundly different is our ability to imagine, our ability to dream and create things which aren't expressions of the real, but are kind of just these spontaneous things that we can just bring about out of ourselves and out of our ability to create. And for love, which is interesting, there is interesting that something which is not that for Lovecraft is bringing a life into the world through, you know, straight fucking. Uh, <laughs> um, that's not, that's also an expression of that for Lovecraft, but at least in his literature, that's why he's just not, he's just not interested in that. He wants to explore the things which are very distinct. And furthermore, Welbeck suggests that Lovecraft is responding to the tendency in fiction contemporary to him to kind of like try and be pushing past old Victorian or 19th century Moors about, or is it Moors or Mores? It would be Mores. Mores, thank you, about um, not talking about sex and the insistence of young writers, no, we have to talk about the erotic, we have to talk about the sexual. And Lovecraft kind of finds that a bit boring, he thinks it's a bit trendy, a bit adolescent, and Welbeck claims at least, because there is like, there's a bit of a question mark over how good Welbeck's scholarship is in this essay like the the note the translator's notes at the back are a little bit not gonna say damning but they are definitely a little bit they're interesting at least because there are some places and quotes and allusions that Welbeck makes to things he says Lovecraft has written which do not actually appear to uh, exist in Lovecraft's works I mean anywhere. I'm sure I've done that myself <laughs> well, we all have yeah um but well, well, you know, certainly Alan Moore, yeah. lo lauded author and genius Alan Moore. I'm but, not, not going to... Genius is a very, very subjective term. Welbeck, however, states that Lovecraft was asked a lot in letters from young writers about how do you write about the sexual. And Lovecraft's response, and his suggestion is almost Lovecraft just got bored with the question and we just almost had a form response. So, personally, I don't. I don't think it's that the most interesting thing to write about because I have my... This, this is the aesthetic I'm exploring. Doesn't really have anything to do with that because of the things I'm interested in. Obviously, by our standards, and you know, even by his own times, right? Lovecraft was definitely a bit of a prude, to say the least. Like he, 
he did he did you know there's a reason why he does you know hark back and romanticize you know um puritan new england because he does and this does kind of like fall within his um general just anti-modernism really mm -hmm. but calling someone just a bit of a prude about sex isn't the same thing as suggesting he had some kind of like deep pathology going on here at least that's Welbeck's thesis and it's certainly like no basis to, as some people have done of suggesting that actually what's going on here is some kind of late, like sort of like Lovecraft was super was a super in the closet uh, gay guy or mm. and, and, and so like, I, I, I don't see any enormous reason for believing that I do agree with Welbeck on that regard amusingly however Welbeck singles out the writers who have tried to introduce the erotic into Lovecraft as just being a bit crap. And he <laughs> thinks it's all a bit churlish. He thinks it's just an attempt to make Lovecraft a bit... I don't know, he doesn't use this word, but I'm going to use the word wankable. Uh, <laughs> and he also singles Whoa. out he singles out Colin Wilson as being an especially egregious example of shit attempts to introduce the sexual into Lovecraft. Oh my god. We have a lot to say about Colin Wilson, right? I think we're biding maybe, our time. Maybe not yeah. a lot, but the same thing. No, said it's a lot. We, were, we, <laughs> we, we have just, feelings. We, we really opened up to each other w one night over how much we fucking despise Colin Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> There's a Colin. I, okay, no, actually, no. I'm saving. Are you going to say the quote? Do you want? No, to, no, you want no to I'm, not, sa I'm oh not saving God. the quote because we are saving our, that shit for. Oh, saving that particular save... spicy take. There's a lot of spicy takes we're saving. Uh, and actually, if so, I think something that I, I'm going to say this. This is this is Sean laying himself open before you here. Okay, my view about Alan Moore's eroticization of Lovecraft is I think that's actually more just about what Alan Moore's about. Alan Moore's work, especially, actually, almost all of Alan Moore's work from like Watchmen onwards has been very sexual, and I don't mean that in a bad way. It just is like he's one of his main interest as a writer is eroticism is sexuality is sex as such and just and that's just one of alan moore's things and he i think he's done it very well in places there's definitely some quite dubious stuff he's done like lost girls is a little bit okay i kind of see why you might want to do this alan but maybe you should have thought a little bit more before you created this thing uh but and 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 you know i think that what we see with Providence and Neonomicon, which again, I like. I like them a lot for what they are. I think this isn't so much a deep archaeology into what Lovecraft is really about as it is Alan Moore's Lovecraft. And again, this is fine. I'm, I'm down with that. You know, everything's up for grabs, really. But if we want to see Michelle Welbeck's Lovecraft, following on from his thesis that Lovecraft's lack of interest in, in sexuality should be taken at face value, I think we see that in what is conveniently the only Michelle Welbeck novel I've read, Submi read Submission. So um, Submission isn't a horror novel. Uh, it is it's a piece of speculative realism, speculative fiction rather, <laughs> about very near future yeah, France. Hang up the like it's the France of uh, like the presidential election in in uh, 2022 or something, where in this in this novel there is in France a mainstream Islamist party. And a the uh, what was then called uh, the Union for a Popular Movement, which is now called uh, the Republicans, and the Socialist Party in France, end up forming a broad coalition with the uh, Muslim Brotherhood. I think they're called in the novel, in order to keep uh, the National Front out of government. 
and the presidency goes to uh, a Muslim to the leader of this party. And what he proceeds to do is he proceeds to reorganise France socially and politically and economically along um, Islamic principles, along Islamic uh, political principles. And what submission kind of does is it explores a lot of the, and we're going to go into more detail about this a little bit later, but explores a lot of the reactionary anxieties that Lovecraft has about other ethnic groups and other racial groups and other cultural groups. Uh, and because Welbeck is definitely sympathetic to that worldview, he's judging from this novel and just most of the things he's said. Uh, so what we can see in this novel is this um, playing out of a lot of Lovecraftian things. The main character is a listless academic who is a specialist in the uh, Wiesmans. Um, well, Crucial, they... very important from a Lovecraftian perspective. Mm -hmm. I will make a quick note there. And uh, because something that Lovecraft is so concerned with is the threat that the other poses towards a civilization which is already precarious, what we kind of see in this is Welbeck doing that but in this case the other is explicit very explicitly is the muslim is the is, is the is the world of islam encroaching into europe like this is how he imagines it obviously and also the notion that the european liberal order is inherently precarious and it's very possible that another kind of order could supplant it and this is what happens this is what happens in that novel because what kind of goes along with it and this is like, the point i want to make here is submission isn't the call of cthulhu submission is the shadow of Arinsmith. Mm. because the way that this novel ends is the main character this listless decadent academic he kind of ends up thinking why shouldn't i convert to islam and again this is like welbeck's image of what that means this isn't like i'm not making any kind of statement about what islam is like this is welbeck's visions of this and for welbeck he focuses on um patriarchal formulations of islam in particular and especially something that really kind of like this guy is keen on who's obviously kind of insert character for, for Wilbeck is the of the fact that you know in muslim societies it's polygamy is a, is is um uh is a custom and just the, he starts thinking about the ideas well i could have you know one wife for cooking one wife for the bedroom and stuff and he that's kind of why he goes with it but for for wealth he sort of submits to the other in the kind of similar way to how the protagonist of Shadow over Innsmouth submits as well to otherness and what we kind of though like obviously Welbeck is gross is a gross reactionary right and this novel is a very reactionary novel so again I really want to hammer this is not the weird signal line on what on on these things that's at all scoundrel Welbeck oh, that's scoundrel Welbeck this is how Welbeck conceives of it and I think what we kind of see in submission is like a very start playing out of Lovecraft's reactionary anxieties about civilization and about how the West is under threat from the other. And that's really concerning. You know, I, I think that is that's one of something at least we should be concerned about as readers of Lovecraft. Mm. And I think just as a general comment on that, we are an hour in. When are we going to get gay? I think we're going to get a gay right now, Lucy. Well, I'm going to get a whiskey first. I'm okay for whiskey because I've still got half okay, a glass cool. left. Here we go. 
quick double add back. Could you get me a glass of water, though, please? Uh, do you want this one? No. There was only one glass on the table. Oh, okay. I wish I would have that one. Thank you. <laughs> right, I have planned to... I've got a thing I want to launch into. I'm going to not bother putting my shoes on. It's too hard. <laughs> So deep this. I feel it's been kind of like one of our drier episodes, but I think that's all gonna change yes. when we get gay. Okay, so like we talked a lot about race and sexuality, and like basically my take that I wanted to bring up here right now is the the kind of the ambiguity about Lovecraft the Man that we mentioned earlier, I think is a very crucial thing to focus on when we're when we're thinking about both these issues simultaneously. Um, because, as I, as I mentioned earlier, there was that idea that, like, um, sexuality as an all-too-human thing, um, as an all-too kind of, like, a mundane reality, um, it's, it's sort of, like, I have in the past kind of um, struggled with this from a critical angle, or, or just thought about this in, uh, from a critical angle, just in the sense that his attitudes to race are sort of kind of, for me, come onto the same category, as in it's surprising that he got so het up if he had all this cosmic vision uh, that he was um, he, he was mad about, like, um, ethnic minorities uh, taking his job, <laughs> that kind of thing, you know, or, you know, mundane economic concerns or just, you know, um, it seems something banally kind of human, um, which doesn't sit, you know, which sits sits strangely with his cosmic scope uh just if you look at it from on a direct in a direct sense um so i think it needs a certain degree of unpicking as to how how the mundanity that so affected lovecraft the man translated into the vision of lovecraft the writer um and i think and you know in, in the same way in the same way for both uh race and sexuality which i think are linked in his head and i think possibly the real kind of flashpoint for this idea as it appears in his work uh, comes in a particular quote from uh, Call of Cthulhu which is as follows That cult would never die till the stars came right again and the secret priests would take great Cthulhu from his tomb to revive his subjects and resume his rule of earth but time would be easy to know for then mankind would have become the great old ones free and wild and beyond good and evil with laws and morals thrown aside and all men shouting and killing and reveling in joy then the liberated old ones would teach them new ways to shout and kill and revel and enjoy themselves and all the earth would flame with a holocaust of ecstasy and freedom meanwhile the cult by appropriate rights must keep alive the memory of those ancient ways and shadow forth the prophecy of their return. Beautiful. Oh, yeah. thanks. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the reason that quote stands out for me so much, I think I'm just going to drop straight in with the, the critical angle in that um, 
in in terms of thinking about queerness in this regard um that i think is a very very integral quote because it um it's it rings very profoundly with um with an idea put forward in fact by um a very you know a very significant figure who we haven't talked about nearly enough i think in this podcast which is uh george bataille mm. um and it's his it's that whole idea of destruction and orgiastic pleasure or kind of jouissance is the uh is the kind of uh, psych, uh psychiatric term for it the idea psychoanalytic. of psychoanalytic term for it which is the um the kind of pleasure in a excessive to an excessive painful ecstatic sublime destructive degree um and this is something that um has been tied to a lot of uh queer well tied particularly in with um the idea of queer sexuality as it's conceived by um as it's conceived in the writings of Georges Bataille uh, I, I think a concept he refers to as the as the accursed share uh which i wondered if you could just sort of articulate that a bit well, um, thank you for asking. Well, I mean, like, there's a very, very good episode by um, the, a chap we had on to interview. A friend of, of the podcast. Friend He's of the officially podcast. friend of the podcast yeah. now. Can't philosophy. Um, in his video about uh, Bataille and Hellraiser, um, he talks about this a lot. So the accursed share in, um, in Bataille's theory. So he developed his own kind of, like, so Bataille was, if you don't know who he is, he was a French... Uh, he was a god what was he like it was so many weird things he was a librarian he was a he kind was of a, uh, counter well he was sort he of was, loosely tied to the surrealist movement but actually stepped away from it very interestingly he, he was he was a philosopher he was a literary theorist he was a librarian he was an expert in antique coins he was an ex-seminarian oh yeah he was an ex-seminarian who quit the seminary when he became an atheist for obvious reasons and a pornographer as well uh, that makes more sense yeah <laughs> he i've read to i've read two of his pornographic novels um the story of the eye which i hated so much it i eventually realized i actually loved it and blue of noon which i just like outright loved 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 so good reboot of noon and but he also wrote these um theoretic these very weird theoretical works and he developed his own political economy which he kind of like admits of embarrassment that this is like a thing he's been working on which he called a theory of general economy and for bataille he bataille developed this notion that all human activity no matter what level that's happening even if it's individual interpersonal or the great collective activities of a national or a global economy they all produce an excessive quantity eventually a quantity which cannot be just recombined with the general productive efforts um, to increase those efforts eventually you end up with just this leftover energy almost or this leftover product which i mean in a sense this is capital right this is fucking capital itself right and he calls this the accursed share and he in his books of the same name his i think his four five volume work the accursed share which i must confess i've only read the first three volumes of it or something uh, charlatan. <laughs> i'm sorry i got bored when i got to the stuff about and here's the economy of the reformation no one cares about the reformation the reformation is boring i 
I, I thought as an Anglo-Catholic, you would care very deeply about the I have never claimed to have a coherent worldview, Lucy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also profoundly lazy, so there you go. Anyway, and so he, in this book, in, in these books, he explores in his kind of faintly dubious like um, way different ways different societies have found ways to expend the accursed share for example um the uh the the, uh, the gift giving practices that exist among some north american indigenous communities are just almost like passing on obligations is the way he suggests like it's kind of almost not a happy event it's just like hey now have an extra canoe now your fucking problem what we do with this canoe and he also suggests this as a solution as to why uh major american especially aztec culture had so many practices around just sacrificing people just huge quantities of people maybe it's not as much as the spanish said but definitely like well a lot of people would just like literally just chewed up by this by the religious order here it was very like it is, I think it is, I don't know, I'm not going to say it's without precedent because I have no fucking idea, I'm not a scholar, or an anthropologist, but it's definitely, like he he suggests that what we see in these societies are different ways of expending this energy. And how we kind of tied this in with queer sex, and this is all queer sexuality, is the fact that queer sexual expressions aren't procreative, they can't you know, to to uh, two women or two guys just you know fucking going at it. It's not going to make a new human. Mm. It's, it's so there's this so some um, so one of the suggestions about why historically there has been such issue taken with queer sexual expression is the notion that it's decadent because it's wasteful and it can't produce something outside of itself. I mean, like, um, this being said, like, the notion of the thing produced outside of itself being, it can't procreate. Obviously, like, obviously, like that's a, quite a reductionist idea of what sex is even about in the first place. But this is often, an this is at least an angle that has sometimes been taken about why there's something wrong about it. Because, of, well, it's not for anything. Nothing mm. happens from it. It's just this inward turning of pleasure, almost. It is a new way to revel and destroy this is a holocaust of ecstasy and freedom. Chin chin. Chin fucking chin. Happy Pride Month. Yeah, happy Pride Month. I mean, like, if we wanted to... It's going to say, like... Is this the point I... where, we, like, just in case people, listeners don't realise, I think we should just remind them this, this is accidentally an LGBT podcast. Yeah, every single episode has been gay as hell. Yes, I'm a cis gay man. I'm a lesbian trans woman. Hooray, hooray, hooray. Hooray, hooray, hooray. I mean, if we want to get, like, you know, bring it right up into modern terms of, like, a good example of the accursed share is the, uh, is the line from the Christmas song by, uh, Ludacris, which is, I, I can't remember the context, but it's like, fuck it, it's Christmas, new titties for everyone. <laughs> Revel and destroy and kill. Yeah. Um, but I mean, yeah, I mean, to bring that into just, like, a more broad sense of um, how we conceive of like Victorian or latent Victorian sexuality uh, and the morals they're applied there too. This is a um, this is a this ties in very closely with the concept of degeneracy, which we're going to be talking about a great deal. But um, I think just like an example I would hold up is the um, is the the taboos around masturbation. In Victorian society 
um, which uh, produced some very, very interesting psychology. Uh, I mean, I, I think a good text to consult on this would be the wonderfully named Psychopathia Sexualis by Richard Kraft von Ebbing, which is <laughs> the, the canon text in this respect. Um, but, like, I think it's just worth mentioning, have you ever eaten cornflakes or, uh, for perhaps for our American listeners, also cornflakes or graham crackers why lucy yes okay. i have eaten okay okay yes <laughs> okay basically uh, the reason they were designed as they are the reason why they're so fucking flavorless and dull but for some reason are a part of our culinary culture is because they were they were specifically conceived to contain as little nourishing energy or protein as possible because if you had like insufficient protein you wouldn't be driven to uh onanism or the act of self-abuse basically yes. masturbation um because it it was tied to a broader concept of like degeneracy and this was conceived at a time when psychological the psych psychology of criminology was really starting to come together there was that italian guy whose name i can't remember oh is this lombardo lombardo yeah. giuseppe lombardo yeah, yeah, yeah probably um but the the idea of um like, you know, there was, I was, I, I did a unit in my third year on, like, uh, the history of medicine relating to mental illness, and there was shit, like, actively encouraging boys towards group masturbation rather than solitary masturbation because they thought, because they saw that as the, the less harmful option, because if you've got a, if you've got a nut, at least do it in a way that's sociable so you don't become a psychopathic killer. Um, uh, and... Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. That's... It just, it suddenly struck home to me. It's like, oh, so the medical services dealing with trans stuff do seem to, like, really push it on you if you want to start HRT to save your sperm, you know, if you're a uh, MTF, to, like, get, freeze your sperm first. And it's like, oh, that's a very interest. that's like a fucking Victorian legacy. It's like, if you must be a non-producer, at least keep the option open. We're, the powers that be are going to be happier about this. Uh, you know, you know, um, you becoming a woman at our expense. You know, at least let us, at least give us this fucking uh, like hetero superstructure bullshit for our entertainment. Mm. Like, go forth and fucking quiverful that shit. Okay, this. Well, I mean, this is Pride Month. It's Angry Month. Um, but anyway, Pride Lovecraft. 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 So, I know. I think like. Lovecraft displays a certain amount of what I was talking about in relation to the um, to the, the 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 form of aberrant or wasteful sexuality in in the sense that sexuality or pathological or atypical sexuality can lead to degeneracy from on a physiological basis degeneracy from what is typically considered human and we see this in the shadow over insmith narrative that you were talking about with the 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 um because the narrative of that is coupling with the fish people to produce a race of people to become fish people we see it in um we see it in um in the dunwich horror with the woman copulating with a god on an interventional level and we see it in a very interesting one called arthur german um i don't know that one. Uh, arthur german where it's like a guy I think he kills himself or at least has a massive freak out because he finds out his uh, his grandfather was technically uh, an albino ape. Um, god, de a demigod thing oh, okay. that some natives worshipped. But I know, that's, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I just wanted to kind of like make this point. Yeah, 
sexuality, physical degeneracy, they are in his mind linked. Um, but I wanted to kind of like talk about how that related to race. But Should actually, yeah, do you want to just read that quote? This is a quote that... Um, this is uh, something about uh, Welbeck features in uh, his book. This is a quote from a letter that Lovecraft sent to Belknap Long. This is just about him... This is Lovecraft just describing a multicultural, multi-ethnic, just urban landscape, right? That's what we have here. This isn't a story. This is just him. Which he would just go into fits of apoplectic fury about. Yeah, so this is what he writes. The organic things, Italo-Semitico mongoloid, inhabiting that awful cesspool, could not by any stretch of the imagination be called human. They were, mon they were monstrous and nebulous adumbrations of the pithancra of the pithanc Okay, I've actually done like three takes of this now. Can I have a go? Can I just read that word? Let's say it. Yes, Lucy, read the word. Okay. Oh, for fuck's sake. It's so... What word is that? Pithecanthropoid. Thank you, fish person, we think. Pithecanthropoid and amoeble. Vaguely moulded from some stinking, viscous slime of Earth's corruption and slithering and oozing in and on the filthy streets or in and out of windows and doorways in a fashion suggestive of nothing but infesting worms or deep-sea unnameabilities. They, over the degenerate gelatinous fermentation of which they were composed, seemed to ooze, seep, and trickle through the gaping cracks in the horrible houses, and I thought some avenue of cyclopean and unwholesome vats crammed to the vomiting point of gangrenous vileness and about to burst and inundate the world in one leprous cataclysm of semi-fluid rottenness. That's the Lower East Side. Right, that's, that's just him talking about fucking New York. He, oh, like, shit, I'm going there in October. For love, from... <laughs> Wait, no, that's, that, that has no bearing on the... <laughs> Jesus Christ, listen. Uh, I Gonna be so, partying with some Satanists out there. So the point, the point being that for Lovecraft, the sight of what is just a fucking normal city in the West, right, of just a society in which people aren't all white, in which we have a diversity of ethnic groups and cultural formations coming together, that is a, a source of fucking cosmic horror for this guy. Hmm. That's something that's... And this is exactly... I think my, I think the point I want to make, I think this is the core point for me here. Lovecraft's work, its relationship with sexuality is not an, a, a pathological eroticism on his part. His weird shit about sex is because of his ideological perspective. Yeah. That's what it is for him. For this, go, all this, this goes back to some of the stuff we talked about with House, I think, really. Yeah. The notion, you know, the fascistic mindset is one which is it's just a really fucking weird take on sex right because the and especially when it comes to how sex is manifested in the other because if the other is getting down to fuck it can't be right it can't be good it has to be the monstrous and the threat to good white straight boring monotonous productive godly sex somehow mm. if it's people who aren't, aren't like us doing it then it has to be moldy and dripping and weird and mino like yeah that's what I think that I think for me that's the heart of what it is for Lovecraft that it's not that I mean okay that fascism is of course a pathological worldview but this is why I do ultimately reject 
Alan Moore's taken it, but it is a kind of like it's a sublimation of his personal hang-ups about sex. No, it's a manifestation of a profoundly reactionary fascistic worldview. This is what sex looks like if you're a fucking racist reactionary, even if you are a fantastic horror writer like Lovecraft is. Yeah. Because even ordinary people are pithecanthropoid abominations if they aren't uh, if there aren't fucking wasps. I mean, that is that is fucking that is it. Um and yeah, why do we I, like this guy? Why again? do we oh jeez. <laughs> okay. So so yeah, like that's the point <laughs> I love I love our relationship with the uh, the notes becomes just steadily more distant after a couple of whiskeys. Like we've but... spent so long planning this out, and we are just uh, we're just fucking freestyling it. Okay, <laughs> yeah. So basically, um, my take on Lovecraft, which has been like my line on Lovecraft for a long time, is that I think the fundamental thing is that he his idea of civilization and race are fundamentally tied together. Because um, because civilization is a thing that has been produced by humanity at a certain point in its evolutionary um, in its evolutionary um, progression. Uh, you know, he went very kind of like e- I'm not gonna say eonic, but like he he you know, he saw he saw civilization as something produced by humanity at a certain set at a certain point of physiological achievement and a detraction and. He basically, he's, I think he's gone a bit like Stefan Molyneux about it in that he sees humanity and civilization as being the crea- the result of a species pulling itself out of the slime, pulling itself out of the waste or, you know, the destructive like chaos of creation into a thing which he at once lionizes as being a very um, profound and, um, and, and powerful thing, but at the same time, is a fragile and temporary one and is based on precepts which are extremely fragile and uh, what you know something that we might conceive of being wholly humanly constructed and that's the only point of order in the universe that has any value before slip before it slides back into the primordial chaos and i think aberrant sexuality in any form that he touched on is a slide towards the pr- primordial chaos any race mixing be it with inhuman entities or um under like lower human entities is a backslide into that primordial state of chaos and there's a there's a quote i actually want to um to bring up in this context because you talked a bit about wasps right yeah okay so like puritan new englanders who he who he regards as the absolute tip top of the of the pile of humanity, the ones he 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 romanticizes most, he lords their achievements most in both like physiological and scholarly and mental capacities. Um, even like, even he ac- acknowledges that even if they are these perfect white Puritan settlers, they themselves can backslide. And at this point, I'm going to read a excerpt. Excerpt. Uh from his story, which is a very good, excellently self-contained story called "The Picture in the House," um, where he he talks about like basically the discovery of um, New England settlers gone feral, and the quote reads. <laughs> And a feral, I use that term in its actual biological sense, as in a domesticated animal that has returned to a wild state but is 
violent and counter to the natural order so, that I, it's introduced I was, just to. I was just imagining a group of like comical sort of like they're all wearing the fucking hat and just going off to live in the woods are you thinking so, of furries no no no, 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 no the okay. co- the cold puritan hat oh shit no yeah or tall beavers as he talks about in that fucking the story of the street where he talks about the history of the street it's like ah. Oh, <laughs> this street used to be good with the men with the tall beavers, and then then the blacks came. And um, but no, no, no I'm going to oh, read the quote. I'm going in serious mode. Sorry. Yeah. So divorced from the enlightenment of civilization, the strength of these Puritans turned into singular channels, and in their isolation, morbid self-repression, and struggle for life with relentless nature, there came to them dark, furtive traits from the prehistoric depths of their cold northern heritage. By necessity practical, and by philosophy stern. These folk were not beautiful in their sins, erring as all mortals must. They were forced by their rigid code to seek concealment above all else, so that they came to use less and less taste in what they concealed. Only the silent, sleepy, staring houses in the backwoods can tell all that has lain hidden since the early days, and they are not communicative, being loath to shake off the drowsiness which helps them forget. Sometimes one feels it would be merciful to tear down these houses, for they must often dream. Da, 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 da. That's why we like Lovecraft, because his horrible brain spawns such pithy shit. That was great, yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, what's a pity, though? It's all obviously some what, of the horrible the, analogy about being gay. The point I'm making is that Lovecraft was racist against white people. This is something... This is... And I say that with a huge... I'm being, light, but... I'm being contrarian. I'm not saying racism against white people is a thing. Because um, saying... it isn't. No, no, this is actually something that is so fucking typical of, like, the further down you get into that mentality. Right? <laughs> the the more shitty and youtuber you get. Yeah, because it's not like... Because you start... Because, like, it's almost a sort of, like, like the fascistic mindset kind of, like, starts off with just, like, the most obviously, um, like, distinct uh, other, like, cultural ethnic groups, right, as the other. But then it just... As, like, the vision just turns further and further inwards, it starts, like, scrutinising people. It's like... Got Irish features though, haven't you? Kind yeah. of like so, but because this is the um... was, was it in like um, last podcast on the left? I can't remember what episode it was, but like they talk, they mentioned like like Italians weren't white until 1971. It was like honestly, like actually, genuinely, there were like sort of like in the 19th century in America, the like there was a lot of anxiety about like specifically about Irish immigration and Italian immigration for like lots of reasons, including like this bullshit about like this bullshit race science the idea that sort of like you know sort of like a like there isn't a i mean this is actually why a lot of people have said like the obvious for so many reasons the obviously obvious bullshitness of white nationalism but also the fact like some fascists and racists don't like white nationalism for exactly the reason they say that there isn't a white race there are like no it's far more like just dis- like distinct than that this sort of like i don't want to have anything to do with the inferior european races because i'm like from the one village in like southern germany that was the one like the purest expression of the aryan people or something oh, sure. and this is the um yeah because and like there's and i mean a lot i mean part Part of the anxiety about Irish and Italian immigration was because of their Catholicism as opposed to their Protestantism, um, because there was this anxiety about the fact, like the notion that if Irish and if Irish and Italian Catholics come to live in America, they're actually going to be like a secret vanguard for Papist tyranny, which was a huge thing. That was it was a huge thing. That, that like you did get like political parties whose whole thing was to halt like halting the tide of Catholic immigration and stuff. It was um, yeah. 
like and, and this is uh yeah and and but the um but like the kind you do get that mentality if you look at like the uh, 20th century european uh fascist sort of movements like the nazis have like like not all europeans are Aryans in like the pure sense mm. like sort of like people who we would regard as white eastern european people were subhumans were slavs they were subhuman yeah. they weren't Aryan. they were people who sort of like their proper place was to be enslaved or just exterminated and then we saw this um, in literally in world war Two, yeah. where like the french the reason paris isn't a fucking pile of rubble is because it's like they respected them enough to keep them alive whereas like on the eastern front they took no prisoners yeah kind of thing well i mean they did take you know did take prisoners but they were like far less and and you know there that... was active effort like the, the the um the nazi program when it came when it came to the east i think this is what was called uh, just um the um i don't know what it's called i think just the ost plan the eastern plan was that sort of like the the, the indigenous population the, the people who were already there the slavs would just be over a period of a long over a period of decades would just be slowly starved to death and and worked to death in order to produce lapens realm for um, the german people and then you know, they had like um and they actively during the war were trying to colonize eastern europe with people who they just like took from germany just like said look this is the new promised land they were opening in the east for our people because we've got rid of the threats there like even like um people who we would like completely uncontroversially consider european white europeans um for um, polish people were regarded as just uh, as a degenerate culture that just needs to be completely gotten rid of when the germans occupied poland you were not allowed to refer to it even as as poland it was simply that entire country in all of like uh, all of the official reports and statements was just referred to as general government this is because this is the because uh, this is the um apotheosis of the racialist worldview is one where it's this is how precise it gets where it's not even where it's not even like again like these it's like it's not even like the big picture of sort of like where we can sort of like more easily talk about sort of distinctive um uh sort of distinct ethnic groups with all of the various caveats with that but becoming increasingly an increasingly surgical outlook upon what even whiteness is where it comes you know, get, it gets to the point where basically it's just like the french the british and the germans are the only real ones who are aryans and maybe a few of sort of the, the more the more paler skinned people who live in india and tibet that's it uh shall we try we should probably make a desperate stand to redeem lovecraft from this pit of objection that we've stirred up around him that we he well and truly occupied but he was a nice guy he had nice <laughs> friends and this I, is but I, this is the but this is the thing with the bigot that oh it's it's never the jews i'm friends with but yeah which literally with lovecraft you know sort of like he was an anti-semite who married a jewish woman from ukraine jesus christ yeah but but, uh, 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 <laughs> okay but um taking it back to um lovecraft lovecraft and queerness like this is really the queer theory episode but we're just, we're just once again once again, again we're just desperately just... trying to sort of like desperately well, not desperately but just like being very insistent about our anti-fascist credentials on this podcast um, i feel this is necessary because i mean i'm gonna get cancelled as fuck if we but um okay so Contra to that though, what do we? What do the ambiguity of Lovecraft? 
bang. Okay. Do, yeah, because what do we, or perhaps more specifically, what do we as as queer people who are trying, who have stated at the outset of this, we love, we really like Lovecraft. No, we do and that's like why Lovecraft. We know about all this shit. That's why we love Lovecraft and, and why we do engage with his work. What exactly is it that we're doing? Why are we talking about What this? the what fuck do we, do we see here? in this man? And um, it is, and yeah, Lucy, what do we see in this? Man? Okay, so um, there's a point that I kind of put in my notes, which seemed like a distant dream. Now that um, that like basically we have an idea of love. I've talked about like Lovecraft as being, even if he's not overtly fascistic, he did kind of have a hyper conservatism that played easily into a fascistic worldview. Um, but again, I've said that there's that, I've stated that there is that ambiguity that it's like, oh, these are the all two human things. Um, there's a kind of a degree of uncertainty. There's the fact that, um, there might be more, com- there might be more to it because he, um, because his, um, his, his preferences may, or yeah, his, uh, his views may not have necessarily been to do with race, but more to be with civilization, and it just happens to be particular races have reached a point of civilizational development that he recognizes. Um, but there is, there is, so in terms of like, we've talked a lot about the, um, the, uh, the strange afterlife of H.P. Lovecraft, the fact that people have tried to turn him into they've like kind of i know they've sort of played on his conservatism to a degree that they've turned him into a countercultural or inherently subversive figure which isn't necessarily untrue and the quote i bring up which is in fact in um which is in dm mitchell's introduction to the starry wisdom where he makes the uh the comment uh so I'm just going to read the whole paragraph because it's in here somewhere. But um, my aim, this is this is a statement on assembling the anthology as editor. My aim is to dig deeper, to bypass the superficial and access the subterranean channels of archetype and inspiration which Lovecraft was connected. The, the current of semi-occult symbolism and shamanic imagery inhabiting his writings did not originate in his conscious, rational mind any more than that of William Blake, Antonin Artu, Lovecraft, or, or Antonin Artu, Lovecraft's direct ancestors have frequently been acknowledged, brackets, Mackin, Poe, Blackwood, etc. But we can also see in retrospect how his contemporaries were simultaneously yet unknown to him, working with aspects of the same primal material in many diverse ways. One need only look at Latremont's Maldoror with its delirious visions of flying octopi and imbecile gods, as the lurid polytheistic or at the lurid, lurid polytheistic systems of Alistair Crowley and Helena Vlbatsky. Um, especially at our two stage scenario, there is no more firmament. Um, the idea that even if he was an arch conservative, even if he was as something as shallow as just a like uh, garden variety Victorian moralist, he had such um, curiosity about him that he channeled something which we typically associate with the very very extremes of avant-garde modernism that is exemplified by Artu and profoundly exemplified by Latremont. Um, but he just, or, or, you know, or even going back to a figure that uh, Bataille writes about a lot, which is Desardes. Um, and I mean, and, I mean, that's, there's that ambiguity there about whether Desardes was perhaps similar to Lovecraft in this extent that, you know, people have speculated that Desardes was a arch-moralist who was showing 
the sheer depravity of the human spirit as a mechanism to show how to transcend above it. But, um, but, but basically, um, I, there's so much to unpack there. I know you've probably got some caveats to insert there, <laughs> but, um, but it's like, is Lovecraft an inherent? Because well, Lovecraft makes explicit in his writings that he is really not that fond of a lot of the kind of uh, movements in a modernist literature or art. He well. And I think especially he's not fond of them, not because they're subversive in a way that is contrary to his worldview so much as he, he yeah, particularly, and this is particularly as it relates to um, the surrealists and the proto-surrealists vis-a-vis Maldoror and Alvajarian people, that um, these are, these are again human concerns. They relate, when, and when people in the 19th century were writing cosmic horror, or things he identified as cosmic horror, they were writing about them as expressions of psychology and nothing more. Whereas he, even if he was imagining things that didn't exist, that existed in the realms of psychology, his view was always something beyond the human. Um, which is why kind of Lovecraft has become a focal figure for a lot of, a lot of kind of like post-humanist idea or post-humanist readings and things. But, but again, even if, even if, he didn't, you know, even if he, we take him at his word that he just, he shunned the avant-garde movements, um, he did still t- tap into this stuff. He did still tap into R2, the, he was occupying the same mental space as R2 or Latremont. And, um, and so, he, and, and I think that's something DM Mitchell brings up as justification for bringing in Alan Moore and Michael Gyra into his anthology, that this is, this is this is Lovecraft fundamentally. We can't get around that, but at the same time, there is an ambiguity about Lovecraft because, and this relates very directly to the concept of homosexuality in H.P. Lovecraft. We finally fucking got there. Well, it's in like we've got there before, but like this, I finally fucking got there. Um, which well, is what if Lovecraft but gay? Well, that's the thing. He doesn't mention uh, homosexuality specifically but he does touch on many things adjacent to it um so one of the things i will bring up just in terms of like how we can how we can get a directly gay reading from his stories i'll bring up two examples uh one being um one being the the thing on the doorstep which i recommend you read um i i I don't think this counts as spoilers but please pause and come back or something but Basically, the the twist in that is that it's in fact um, okay. A bit of grounding for that one. That is one of that is an outlier in Lovecraft stories in in the sense that he actually describes a, a human relationship between <gasps> a man and a woman in pretty mundane terms, as in like, oh, they're together, they seem happy, and then um, but then <laughs> they did then... all the positions her on top, doggy and normal. Yeah, basically that and. And, um, however, it then, like, transpires that it's, uh, no woman at all, but a, um, the spirit of a deceased alchemist occupying the physiological form of a woman to, um, to ensnare a male, so, or to ensnare a man so that, uh, he can once again possess a male form. So that's kind of, that... There's something queer about that, right? I mean, that's like, I mean, that's... 
That is well, incidentally, that is also the plot of Hereditary, which um, is such a good film. Such a good film. Please people, go see some Hereditary. Some people thought it was bad, and they were wrong. they were dead wrong. I mean, like I, I think I think the whole idea of post horror has been kind of ruined by its critics, or ruined by the people trying to um, lionize it over previous horror. But... Well, this is a thing that's what all units podcasts is said sort of like the word po- the phrase post horror implies horror wasn't always brilliant and it always was. <laughs> I think I was on that episode. I think you were on that episode. <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> oh my god, RIP all units. You were such a good podcast. Um, please come on this one. Like, um, I'm going to say that right now. RIP. RIP, but very much not forgotten. But okay, so there's all that, right? But. The ambiguity to Lovecraft is the fact that he didn't talk about homosexuality, but he did talk about the decadence. And this is very important because, um, well, actually, no, I think, I think the other aspect, the other great kind of manifestation and perhaps the way more significant manifestation of, um, of how queerness in a direct sense manifests in, uh, Lovecraft's fiction is the way he describes essentially there is a there is a very strong current through various works of H.P. Lovecraft where he talks about very, very intense, closely bound male-male relationships. Uh, so it's like two men in pursuit of something profound um, that they must by necessity keep secret from the world. We see this in the statement of Randolph Carter, which I'm very significantly going to come back to later. We see this in... Um, we see this. In, we see this in um, Reanimator, um, but we also see this in The Hound, uh, which is something I want to. I'm just gonna like, straight up read a quote from now because it's very significant. Hound. Okay. Um, so the second paragraph in The Hound is, "May heaven forgive the folly and morbidity which led us both to so monstrous a fate." Wearied by the commonplaces of the prosaic world, where even the joys of romance and adventure soon grow stale, Sinchin and I had followed enthusiastically every aesthetic and intellectual movement which promised respite from our devastating ennui. The enigmas of the symbolists and the ecstasies of the pre-Raphaelites were all ours in their time, but each new mood, each new mood was drained too soon of its diverting novelty and appeal. Only the sombre philosophy of the decadence could hold us. And this we found only by increasing gradually the depth and diabolism of our penetrations. Baudelaire and Wiesmans were soon exhausted of their thrills. Wiesmans, who Sean mentioned the uh, uh, thing he talks about, Hmm. um, till finally there remained for us only the more direct stimuli of unnatural personal experiences and adventures. It was this frightful emotional need which led us eventually to that detestable course, which even in my present fear I mention with shame and timidity that hideous extremity of human outrage, the abhorred practice of grave robbing. What this reminds me of as well is because we do... I mean, the ob- there's an obvious queerness there. Yeah, like, but... just replace grave robbing with sodomy. <laughs> just do it <laughs> and it read remind... that quote again. God, what it, I'll tell you what it fucking reminds me of is the way that, um, and especially in, like, particularly vicious, like, homophobic Christian rights tracts from America try and grasp what exactly uh, and it is specific and this is specifically male male sex to talk about because they focus in on that for whatever combination of reasons they do tend to focus in on that specifically is it often is the te- often you see um 
this idea that it's something that you are led to by a well by a process of grooming i suppose and you sort of like mm. you're led down this pathway towards these increasingly um, diabolistic diabolistic forms of pleasure and also the trope of the idea that um you know about the homosexual or someone you can't trust with your kids because if they're gonna do that with another man what are they gonna do with a child right the, that's the, the that's... whole like slippery slope fallacy exactly the notion that because because we'll be marrying dogs <laughs> um but kind of yeah this there is that that um that is that is what that what the what the the reactionary moralistic view against um, homosexuality often is about the notion that that's sort of, if you break this taboo you'll be more willing to break other taboos like you get people like i remember once um I'm going to fucking call him out there. Nick Land once sharing an article from some dog shit libertarian website talking about the fact that, well, statistically, most serial killers are gay. Which would like, and it is kind of like, and they quoted a study that found that sort of like, there was like the majority of like serial killers sort of like in recent American history had like stated they'd had male-male sexual experience at some point. And they, it was like, a, and like this paper, in fact, like stated explicitly. Obviously, we're talking about such a tiny percentage of the population of the population of serial killers that we can't make any kind of general theorizations about the sexual here. It's just like something they had noted in their findings, where they're looking, and 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 yeah, and this and this is something the notion that there's something inherent, there's something inherently dangerous is the thing dangerous about uh, queerness, about male male sex. Mm. like um it's like um if you actually get it if you actually look at fucking the fucking bible about this right you know it's almost there's only one place where there's even an allusion to lesbian sex it's always men with men and mm. why that's bad and it's always the specific horror of the act of sodomy the act of um penetrative male male anal sex that's yeah. always the focal point of the horror, that action. And that is something I kind of want to touch on in um, in a couple of minutes, actually, because... Okay, so that quote, there's a lot to unpack there, which we've kind of started doing. But one of the things that he brings up is the fact that he is talking about this in what seem like horrified terms. But the reason... But, like, what's striking is that he kind of when he goes into this territory he seems to do so with a degree more sympathy than he would say talking about uh some debased african cultists uh in the i get you know there's that whole thing it's like oh it's okay when white people do it or something but no i think what is striking about that is that it's even if it is something horrific if it's something damning if it's something that necessitates punishment in the form of a of a, a necro dog pursuing you to death and ripping your entrails out um there is a degree of sympathy for it because it is people searching after something profound um and you know he this is i'm going to come back to that that quote well that that story the how um the picture in the house um he just he he starts by talking about um the true epicure of the terrible um the the figure kind of searching after the profound through absolute debasement but what seems to be what seems to be um striking there is that even if even if he associates this with the well you know this is like they are tantamount to the figure who is um very you know who's very much um 
who's very much like is in almost every case the Lovecraft insert, which is the figure of the dreamer, the figure of the visionary, uh, and the figure of Randolph Carter. But I kind of, you know, I, I do want to touch on that basic in a minute. But the reason I bring this up in context of like a certain ambiguity about his writing is that he talks about the decadence in that in that quote, and this very much touches upon really the only insight into what we have from Lovecraft's work, however much we can talk about it in context of homosexuality, that explicitly touches on homosexuality, or, or almost explicitly touches on homosexuality, because the decadence movement, the... Um, so I, I think it's just like, at this point, I should do a quick rundown of what the decadents are, because we know about Oscar Wilde, ever, you know, the picture of Dorian Gray, you know, the classic there, um, a figure that Lovecraft wrote, you know, wrote about a lot. Um, the thing about the decadence is that they were a literary movement that were one of the various kind of manifestations of literary modernism. That um, what's most distinctive about them is that they were a countercultural movement. They uh, were counterpoints to well, they they embraced things such as kind of nihilism and exploration of the extreme towards a point of enlightenment or indeed beauty. Um, and they were they were actively countercultural because uh, they were contrary to both the um, both the kind of Victorian sexual mores of the time, and also to the ideas of enlightenment, you know, of the European Enlightenment um, to an extent, which I don't I, I don't think we have time to unpack here, and may also you know there may be other caveats involved in that, but they were. Because by virtue of these qualities inherent in what they produced, they were a queer movement, mm. and they were exemplified by Oscar Wilde, who was canonic. You know, who <laughs> is just a canonically gay is an extremely central figure in queer theory, and the fact that Lovecraft talks about them in similar terms to how he talks about his um, idealized figure of the dreamer, the figure who he most identified with is very interesting is very there's something inherently you know if not subversive then something romanticized about this this is interesting because this is what this is what we meant what we meant when we said all the way back at the beginning of this episode that we are looking for those intersections between lovecraft the man and the work when it comes to the question of queerness because although we do I, at least, and I assume, Lucy, you do, <laughs> check the total kind of pseudo-Freudian, everything is sublimated. Oh, yeah, totally, yeah. Obviously, yeah. 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 Um, at the same time, a more interesting thing we see when we start to pursue this is are these actual sort of more genuine and obvious moments of sort of queerness kind of coming out, pun unintended, uh, coming out there with, with his work, where there are these moments where it feels as if Lovecraft is letting a little bit too much of himself out there and that there is this certain, um, well, like with the word we've all the years, a certain ambiguity about what was act what the man's desires actually were. I know we already said, I at least already said earlier, but so, you know, I, I don't really buy into the picture of, oh, everything is work has just supplemented homosexuality or something like that, which I don't conceive of, but that does, it may be, Maybe there is something to that when it comes to us trying to figure out what Lovecraft the guy was actually like. Um, the vote when it comes to the because I do want to politicize this because I think it's appropriate to politicize it. I think again though, 
the idea that for Lovecraft, when it's the other embarking on sort of like a, a, a sexual adventure of some kind or, or, or so on, it's horrifying. But when it's the in group, it's one of us doing it. It's a it's romantic and tragic. Again, it's still a, a a demonstration of the reactionary impulse, and even like very specifically when it comes to twentieth century anti modernist far right politics, the um, Oswald Oswald Spengler, the um, the German um, far right historical theorist, and like I I'm not going to pretend to ha understand what Spengler was about in too greater detail, but he was aligned with the conservative revolutionary movement in Germany between the war years, which it doesn't, the conservative revolutionaries don't become the Nazis. The Nazis were an expression of the same ten, you know, far right tendency that existed in German politics. And a lot of conservative, not to defend them because you know, they're reactionary pigs, <laughs> but a lot of them didn't like the Nazis because they felt it was crass and populist and they wanted something more aristocratic and spiritual in their variety of local variety of fascism. But Spengler developed a theory of history which is in terms of cyclical civilizational decline, which which does feel kind of Lovecraftian. I don't know if like we if it's absolutely fucking lately. I don't know if it if we there is actually any reason to believe Lovecraft knew about Spengler. I don't know if there was or not. I don't know if Spengler's works existed in English. When Lovecraft was alive, but um, Spengler believed that civilizations follow cyclical patterns of ascendancy and decline. He believed that civilizations have distinct spiritual characters, and in his book uh, the, *The Decline of the West*, he states that he believes that the West is in a period of decline, and you, you can't stop it; it's just gonna go for it. Uh, but he believed there are ways in which the decline's severity could be compensated for if a movement which understood the nature of history were to come along and could do their best to resolutely preserve those things of our culture which should be preserved. But when it comes to the character that he gives the West, the word he uses is Faustian, because he, for Spengler... Faustian. Faustian. Uh, I was told at school it's actually Faustus, not Faustus. Really? Yes. Ah. Ooh. Okay. Most people will say Faust. Also, it depends. Are you are you Goethe or, or Marlowe? In this case, it would be Goethe, wouldn't it? Well, I'm, I'm team so, Marlowe, so... so <laughs> yeah. Well, if it's Goethe, it probably would be Faust. Oh. Let's go Faustian. Oh, yeah. Faustian. Um, well, I am right if it's Marlowe. Um, he gives the character... He gives Western civilization the, ca the Faustian character because, for him, he believes that the West is fundamentally tragic. Because we sort of like, oh, but we've reached so far, but our goodness is the thing that has cut us down. Our willingness to compromise, our humanity, or some such fash bullshit. Um, and again, I think we kind of see that with Lovecraft's take on queerness among white Westerners, that if it's the other, it's monstrous, but if it's us, well, it's tragic. Yeah, because I think then that's it's... actually fucking nailing it. And, but again... It's fundamentally assuming it's destructive, whereas when us doing it, then it's kind of like, oh, but isn't it romantic all the same to reach uh, out for such things? But if it's the other, well, then it's disgusting. And it is... And it, oh, God, again, no, it is that's the, actually literally it. Okay. And it is, again, still assuming that it's basically gross and wrong, it's which like, it isn't. Do you remember, do you remember the, the fucking the main hermit or something it was called? It was like a guy, he just decided to fuck life, move to the woods, and live for about 20-something years... 
on just like stealing from campsites. Yes. And then there were all these like arguments about like oh, this was an HP Lovecraft story. This was no. a thing in the news, right? And he like he there were all these like I think there was a Vice piece about them where there was actually the, uh, some artwork was commissioned to depict this guy for the article, and it was him like. Uh, fucking romantically bounding through the woods <laughs> with like bits of like tech and stolen camping equipment at the sides of a mountain <laughs> it's like oh isn't isn't it fucking wonderful but like if it was like if it was a woman or a non-white person doing it it would just be like look at this fucking bizarro squatter yeah um what the fuck are they doing so actually no that's that is Okay, no, Lovecraft definitely wasn't racist against white people. I'm trying to redeem his character here. Well, no, sure. he, I mean, he also was, but like, God, it just reminds me of that. Have you seen Community, the show Community? I've seen one episode. Community is a really fun comedy which only lasted for three seasons. There weren't seasons four, five, and six. Um, we should, I mean, like, but there's, there's just a, 45 minutes left, Sean. Oh my God. <laughs> there's, I only mentioned it because there's a bit where one of the characters' dad, who's just sort of like speaks of that like very high arch, you know, sort of like southern space kind of like weird aristocratic vibe and, he, and one of the main characters she, she, she's white she's like Swedish ancestry and he just sort of like well you people I won't do an accent well you people have been breeding with Laplanders for centuries you're practically Finns it's just kind of like proper like a kind of like variety of racism which we just don't think of as existing anymore which was totally a thing like in like Lovecraft's lifetime it doesn't exist until you find someone and then they're like oh geez you're that very specific type of racist yeah again this is actually again to just fucking dunk on Mick Land um the like his his race his racism is one which he kind of like is insistent with like he's why it's not it isn't accurate to call Nick Landon like a white nationalist because like his 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 racism is so fucking weird and precise it's like but no he thinks that like particular kind of like genesis of sort of like white Europeans which are superior to others and sort of like it's more important to preserve their genetic legacy and stuff it's um that's kind of like this is like when like proper deep down deep deep down kind of like racism where the, where it is sort of like sort of, you know sort of like particular counties of Ireland sort of like have uh-huh. deserved to have their heritage preserved and stuff. Oh my god like Lovecraft's story is it the castle or the moat or something set in County Meath? Oh no does he have a thing about the Irish? He does he, he, he I mean, has his Irish he... story um yeah oh no yeah no he does that um, um so we sh- yeah we should bring this back to the plan I've got we've, we've got points to make okay <laughs> so Basically, one of the reasons why I was talking about the decadence, the idea of the dreamer, like the ambiguity, when we find a certain ambiguity about Lovecraft's relationship to homosexuality um, in, in his works, I think there's two things that we specifically need to focus on, which are the two incidences where he touches directly on the concept of homosexuality. One of them is, um, and I'm going to try and like limit the amount of like critique that follows these quotes but uh so he mentions that um so his one explicit mention that on record of homosexuality is in a letter to samuel loveman uh which is also a thing i will point out in a well i'm bringing a bring, i'm gonna come back to Loveman in a second but um he says I guess it is true that homosexuality is a rare theme in novels, partly because public attention was seldom called to it, brackets, except briefly during the wild period, close brackets, until a decade ago, and partly because any literary use of it incurs the peril of legal censorship. As a matter of fact, 
Although, of course, I always knew that pederasty was a disgusting custom of many ancient nations, I never heard of homosexuality as an actual instinct until I was over 30, which beats your record. It is possible, I think, that this perversion occurs in more, more frequently in some periods than in others, owing to obscure biological physiological causes. Decadent ages, when, physiological, when, phys, when psychology is unsettled, seem to favour it. Of course, in ancient times, the extent of practice of pederasty, brackets a custom, which most simply accepted blindly without any special inclination, cannot be taken as any measure of the extent of actual phys psychological perversion. Uh, another thing, many days, uh, many, many nowadays overlook the fact that there was always distinctly effeminate types, which are most distinctly not homosexual. I don't know how psychology explains them, but we all know the sort of damn sissy who plays with girls and when we grow up is a chronic cake eater hanging, <laughs> <laughs> hanging around girls doting on dancers, acquiring certain feminine mannerisms, intonations and taste, and yet having never the slightest perversion of erotic inclination. <laughs> okay, I forgot about the rest of that fucking quote. What the hell is a cake eater? What also... Jesus I'm... Christ, sorry. Like, I had... I wanted to just bring up the fact, like, yeah, this is, like, him explicitly tying, um, him explicitly tying homosexuality to civilizational declines we've been talking about, but the fucking cake eaters! <gasps> also Sissy cake eater, dancing, doting, hanging around girls. <laughs> you see, like, I got so preoccupied with the first part of the quote that I t completely forgot that that's how it ends. <laughs> oh my god. Also, like, genuinely... Wasn't that basically Lovecraft, you know? A cake eater! Like, what so like, was like, like, Welbeck, like, states, describes him as being fond of sweets. At okay, um, well, I'm gonna bring up, like, a thing. So, basically, uh, uh, Wilcox. Uh, no, oh, where is it? Wait. Uh. Okay, uh. Just as a wonderful bit of contrast with what we're doing right now, I just got an email through um, from the treasurer of the parochial church council, which I am the secretary. That's what I do, and I'm not doing this, listener. Okay, wait. Ah, <laughs> oh, shit, where is it? Where? Okay, but basically, I guess this kind of links into the um, the idea of um, his his line here, his his heroizing of the dreamer. Um, where we get, um, oh, wait, oh, he says queer so many times in Call of Cthulhu, but is only using it once in the state in the sense that we would understand it now. Uh, but okay, okay, okay. But no, no, he basically describes the. Oh no, I want to find that quote. I want to find that fucking quote. I know we've got like we're nearing the half hour mark of remaining time, and we have so much to cover. But um, wait, queer recession. Uh, queer image. Queer hereditary. Okay, okay, so Wilcox was a precocious youth of known genius but great eccentricity and had from childhood excited attention through the strange stories and odd dreams he was in the habit of relating. He called himself psychically hypersensitive but of staid folk of uh, but the staid folk of ancient commercial city dis of the ancient commercial city dismissed him as merely queer, never mingling much with his kind. He had dropped gradually from so from social visibility and was now known only to a small group of aesthetes from other towns. Even the Providence Art Club, anxious to preserve its conservatism, found him quite hopeless. But that is he's he's describing himself. He's describing kind of like 
the weird psychologically hypersensitive social outcast um, that you know he's he's generating a kind of sympathy for this figure um, and he's associating that with the figure of the dreamer um, you know that is that is that is pure Lovecraft and that's you know I'm gonna be plowing through these points now because we're running out of time but um, go for it, go so, for it. so psychically hypersensitive these things um, one of the things that I would point out, you know, that was another point I actually forgot to include in my summary of what the decadence stood for, which was, um, which was the 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 lionization or the, the valorization of aestheticism, uh, the so the kind of the distillation of um, what the the uh, well, when when we talk about like we use the term aesthetic today, it means um, a deferring of all value onto an appearance. Um, and you know, it's like, I, I don't actually know what the, yeah. And so, and so that's a very significant thing in the, um, in the decadent movement because it is associated with that countercultural quality. It's, it's, you know, it's like the, you know, the Zazu of, um, occupied France or, and, you know, the anti-militarism that is inherent in that. It is, it is countercultural statement to, um, to to basically dunk on trad moralism by saying like no I'm just gonna be aesthetic, uh, and that is essentially something he he valorized in in the decadence. And the reason that, the reason I keep saying decadence is because the term decadence does actually refer to um, to the you know the the concept of civilizational decline which Lovecraft held in such horror, but it's in the same way something like the term queer has been rehabilitated and has been uh, reversed from a previous slur into something positive. And, you know, the, the antecedents to that was something like gothic becoming um, becoming a, a, a something kind of laudable. Um, that is, when he talks about the decadence, you can't say something is decadent when comment, you know, relating it to the literary movement without turning it into a counterculturally positive thing. And so this is a completely other side of Lovecraft we see coming out there. That, um, and, and that's connected to the point I was talking about with this idea of the dreamer, that he is one with the decadence, even if he doesn't identify with them on a very base level. Um, but the other thing... And this is the thing that I think comes absolutely down to um, what we were talking about earlier with just relating this back to the mythos of how we connect back to those four Lovecraftian axioms we connected to very early on in the podcast is the idea of um, the idea of what this what the result of the aesthetic was. Um, and to illustrate this, I'm just going to call up a quick, very significant quote which is the other quote I mentioned earlier, um, which is from from his, you know, he mentioned earlier the Oscar, the wild phase in his letter to Samuel Loveman. The uh, the one the one time he mentions Oscar Wilde in his writings comes from a quote in the case of Charles Dexter Ward, where he's talking about the effacement of Joseph Kerwin, this kind of da damned sorcerer from public memory, where he says. From that time on, the obliteration of Kerwin's memory became increasingly rigid, extending at last by common consent even to the town records and files of the Gazette. It could be compared in spirit only to the hush that lay on, the, on Oscar Wilde's name for a decade after his disgrace, 
and in extent only to the fate of that sinful King Ranazar in Lord Dunsany's tale, whom the gods decided must not only cease to be, but must cease to ever have been. And this is where I draw a kind of point of correlation between queer theory, as uh, demonstrated within the movement of the decadence, and the Lovecraftian weird, um, because the idea, the reason why the disgrace that um, that Lovecraft talks about in the context of Oscar Wilde is the revelation that there could be a concept of a homosexual, uh, a homosexual, you know, just a state of homosexuality as a preference, uh, and you know, which you know, which Lovecraft brings up in that in that quote I read out in the letter to Loveman um, as an actual psychological inclination. This was something anathema to uh, Victorian Victorian society. We talk about the idea, you know, there's, this, there's that old adage of like the love that dare not speak its name. It wasn't just that it couldn't speak its name, it's that it had no name. Um, and it's that, that point you were mentioning earlier that it's so squarely placed on the idea of homosexuality isn't a preference, homosexuality isn't an identity or a lifestyle or a movement or a way of being. It's an action. It is an act, yes. and that is the act of sodomy. And the revelation that that might actually, there might actually be more to it than that, sent out absolute shockwaves all over, not, you know, Europe, North America, the entire, the entire kind of, like, anywhere that this information, well, no, Western I actually know Western world, specifically Western world. And, yeah, because this is, yeah, this yeah. is um, Foucault's, the, like famous thesis that um, up until the rise of bourgeois modernity, um, the only way sex, sex was conceived of purely as actions and behaviours that people perform upon or with one another, and thus um, the discussion is about sodomy. For, you know, there's this uh, sin or this um, offence against the morals that a man can do to another man, and it hasn't any kind of like, um, and it isn't conceived of as being a type of person in. Foucault's theorization of it, and there are challenges to this for all sorts of reasons. But um, what Foucault states is, with the rise of modernity, and particularly with the rise of what he calls biopower, the attempt to uh, create a political disciplining of the biological and a Turf shirt. <laughs> and of a sense, a sense that the body is a site to be policed. Now, it's a site where power is actioned upon by the state. From this is developed the notion of the categorization of sexualities. Uh, well, Foucault actually says this is where we get the notion of there being such a thing as sexuality as such. He doesn't. He thinks this was a concept tied in purely with the act of categorization, and thus we get with you know psychopathica sexualis the like this um, this um, like brevity almost of sort of like of all the different kinds of pervert, right? Mm. Of all the different kinds of being a sex human for one of a better term, yeah. of which one type is the invert, or the eventually the homosexual, and, and this is conceived of as being uh, a type of, you know, a, a type, a category of a person. And all the um, various associations that go along with that. And, and from a Foucauldian reading, ultimately this is where we get the notion of the gay man and the lesbian, about that, that as distinct types, rather than there being a behaviour a thing that two men can do, or two women can do, uh, there is instead the notion of there being a concrete form of the human, which is the person who does this. And Foucault um, 
rejects like he, Foucault rejects this. He thinks that um, there aren't such things as these distinct concrete categories of the human. He thinks it's like he rejects sex as a kind of master signifier almost. He instead thinks that he like he states like very no, very controversially very um, um, what's the word when you trying to get a reaction out of someone uh, antagonistically no but kind of like uh, that yeah trying trying to get a reaction. Uh, Let's just go back to it. Contrarily? Uh, so Foucault says, and he's, like, he's obviously kind of being controversial here, he states that there isn't such a thing as sex as far as he's concerned. He thinks they're just bodies and desires and pleasures is kind of all it is for him. He thinks that's all, all there is to it. Um, but like, kind of contrary to this, because like Foucault, like Foucault's thing is that, and it's, these categories are like the million microfascisms that we need to reject, right? But it's also been observed that, but at the same time, they do give us the potential to organise politically in a way that didn't exist before we were able to conceive there being a thing which is being queer, mm. rather than just being a particular action that anyone could conceivably do. Instead, there is a, there is a concrete social formation there, which mm. is um, the, the queer identity, the LGBT which identity. Is, which is basically like the fundamental thing that we talk about when, when people use the much much derided and re reduced and debased term identity politics like it's no yeah well, yeah to an extent yeah yeah um which is a uh i know this isn't the epoch i don't know i don't think we have time to sort of go away no i think that. we need to press on we need to, we need to press on uh but yeah okay um but there's a lot to, there's a lot to go into there and um one of the the the, the point i mentioned there with the the invisibility of um of queerness that was then given an actual finally given an actual co cognitive form by the con but you know through the decadent movement and through the creation of a of a queer space a space where queer visibility could actually be a thing that exists um what we see in that kind of uh, configuration is queerness homosexuality um of any or you know qu queerness of any stripe existing in the same noumena dimension, the same outer worldly uh, uncertainty or indescribability that Lovecraft's uh, cosmic horrible pantheon exists in. You know, on that same cognitive level, queerness and cosmic horror are almost simultaneously there, present. And, um, and Lovecraft does actually touch on this in Supernatural Horror and Literature, where he talks about which I talked about briefly earlier, like manifestations of weird fiction that emerge from the avant-garde movements tend to describe um, tend to describe psychological rather than hypothetically real, philosophically hypothetically real scenarios. But at the same time, he he sees it there. He recognizes a quality to it. Um, but I think just like the final point that we really need to touch upon is how we relate this to H.P. Lovecraft, the man. Because we've had the the cosmic horror, and we need we need to now balance that out with the man to achieve the thesis that we set out at the beginning, which is to where does the point of correlation lie? To QE that D. Yes, and so I think um, so. So there were two canonically gay figures in H.P. Love, or canonically queer, historically queer figures. It's not as canon far if as it, we know. It's not canon if it's just the real world. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so two historically. <laughs> queer figures in Lovecraft's life. 
One was uh, Samuel Loveman, the recipient of that fucking bizarre letter. The other was one Robert H. Barlow. Notorious cake eaters, both. Yes. And so the significance of Loveman, I think, is... um, it's basically just as an exemplification, an uh, exemplification of um, that side of Lovecraft. Well, that that thing I touched on with Lovecraft, the idea of the dreamer, because we've talked a lot about the Cthulhu mythos, and the Cthulhu mythos is the thing that is identified as being uh, the canonically, you know, what we recognise as Lovecraft's pre- predominant achievement. Therein, all his uh, concepts of cosmic horror. And, co- and like universal pessimism and anti or whatever anti-humanist agenda we want to attach to that um but the the there is also a kind of counter thing which we talk about which we think of as the which i think is broadly categorized as the dream cycle so that is um the largest work from that being the dream quest of unknown kadath but the other uh, things in well a couple a lot of his earlier stories a lot of his stories influenced by that writer uh, Lord Dunsany kind of crop up in this, um, where he, uh, you know, there are things like the unnameable, the silver key, which is effectively like a prequel or counterpart to Dream Quest of Unknown Kadav, uh, and very crucially, the statement of Randolph Carter. Now, the statement of Randolph Carter is what we were talking about, right? Specifically, Lovecraft, Lovecraft's self-insert as the figure of the dreamer. Um, and Randolph Carter is this is the main character, comfortably comfortable to say, you know, he is the main character of the Dream Cycle stories. Um, he is the focal point of that. And one, I think, just as a summative statement of the Dream Cycle stories, what they relate to is the the side of H.P. Lovecraft that is really absolutely contrary to what we think of as his cosmic pessimism. Because they reflect his sentiment, his sentiments, uh, his like his sentimental side, um, and his romanticization of the past, but also um, in a in a way um, his humanization. Because he talks about the the, the concept of you know the, I, I guess the point I'm making is like the plot of um, of the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath is a guy who is Randolph Carter, brackets Lovecraft, going through this uh, dream world to try and find the city that he has a kind of glimmering memory of in his distant childhood. And it's a kind of, and it's, the reason I describe this as romantic with a capital R is because he is experiencing a sense of primordial unity with himself through this. He's fine, he's rediscovering a thing lost from childhood. And um, and this is, well, one, there is a kind of Freudian reading to this connected to homosexuality, which I'm going to be going into in another episode we have planned in Queer Season. But I will just state that, like, the Freudian, um, the Freudian reading of homosexuality, which Lovecraft was, I met, I, th- I do, I do think was, would have been familiar with, uh, is the idea that um, homosexuality arises from a failure, a, de- a developmental failure of object attachment, which results in an inability to form a cognitive relationship with anything but what one recognises in themselves, and thereby is attracted to a reflection of themselves in a member of the same sex. Um, and the kind of the discovery of a primordial unity is something that could be read as a uh, 
a demonstration of that. Um, but also, I'm going to justify that point a little more in a second, but I will connect this to the point about romanticism I talk about, because the whole idea of rediscovering this um, this sense of primordial, primordial unity is something that was absolutely core to the philosophies associated with romanticism. We see it, you know, we were talking, we talked about William Blake in our uh, Blood on Satan's Claw episode, the idea of Albion, the plot of that is that there is a, a set, you know, the primordial essences of these uh, semi-divine figures being shattered and fragmented and resulting in a kind of imperfect world that they occupy. Um, the, the the centering of that, you know, the, the, the plot of that is sent in the mythos of that is an attempt to kind of recreate or return to a purer way of being away from the unnatural or satanic or biz or um, inhuman entities of the material world. But, you know, we see it in other things. We see, you know, um, it's present in like Percy Shelley's Prometheus Unbound. Uh, it's, 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 it has the Judeo-Christian, um, Islamic, Abrahamic worldview, the return, to, the return to paradise, the return to Eden. Exactly, it was a kind of slightly more psychedelic and opium-influenced version of that. Oh, but the reason why I connect this to, um, the reason why this is so connect, so significant to Lovecraft's queerness, as aside from the you know being true to yourself element that is a pretty, not too much of a jump from that. Um, the reason this is connected to um basically one of the first stories that emerged out of the dream cycle was the was the eponymous the statement of randolph carter which is about um randolph carter the lovecraft stand-in um in one of those intense secret tightly bound male-male relationships with a figure called harley warren and the thing about these uh these relationships is there's usually a kind of like top involved in them someone who's more kind of like domineering the one who yeah, is yeah it's not lovecraft um no it's very no it isn't is it it's no. like harley warren is the kind of occultist who goes down into the tomb who said who specifically tells randall carter not to go in because of because his nervous his sensitivities would be too disrupted and he would die which is literally what would have happened to lovecraft there was a um, indeed that was inspired by a dream that lovecraft had and in the dream what the guy says to him i don't know if it was loveman in the dream uh, who became Harley Warren? But yeah, the guy says to him, "Oh, you can't go to come down here with me. You couldn't even pass your army physical, which indeed Lovecraft did oh, not Jesus. do, which is why he didn't serve in the in the First World War." Oh my God! So he was a sick. He was he was like in the classic sense of the word sickly. Yes. Yeah. So that is that is uh, that is the homosexuality like that. That's really gay. Whatever the hell else Lovecraft says about homosexuality, that's. That's that's an extremely homoerotic story because by sheer virtue of its context and and cosmic significance, and so if we're thinking about these two counterparts, these two great. Also, I would just point out as a side note, he never published Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath in his lifetime. It was purely a personal pursuit. That, that is interesting. Yeah, um, but. But but um, so if we if we if we're weighing these things up as perhaps not entirely equal counterparts, the mythos, well the the dream cycle and the mythos, it my stipulation for the last fucking fifteen minutes we've got left of studio time, <laughs> is that um, what what Samuel Loveman, noted homosexual Samuel Loveman, represented for the dream cycle, 
Robert H. Barlow represented for the mythos. And so Robert H. Yeah. We need to do... Okay. I need to Robert read H. that Barlow. fucking quote. Okay. Robert H. Barlow was a, um, a protege of Lovecraft, let's say. Um, because, you know, he was a young... He was a young kid. A young prodigious... Uh, pro, 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 young and clever... Pro- oh, what, what? I know the word you're trying to say. Prodigious, prodi- no, not prodigious. Precocious, precocious, precocious literary figure who got into a, a collaborate. You know, and the, the the story of their lives is fucking charming. He he, they were correspondents, and um, they collaborated on stories, and then um, and then Barlow was like, "Hey, um, do you want to come and stay with my family in Florida?" And Lovecraft was like, "Yeah." And then he got there and it was like, it turns out by family, he meant his parents because he was 16. And, um, and so they continued to be collaborators and they wrote a very significant story called The Night Ocean. And I'm going to come back to The Night Ocean in a minute. But um, The Night Ocean, as well as being a, a collaborative story of Barlow and Lovecraft, although we think mainly Barlow simply because... Um, it's one of the few stories Lovecraft is involved with that he actually speaks about in positive terms, going back to that whole idea of self-effacement we talked about earlier. But, okay, so the novel The Night Ocean, the literary fiction novel The Night Ocean by one uh, Robert Le- Philip Lafarge? Lafarge, the Lafarge novel. I can't remember his first name. Uh, Paul Lafarge. Um, basically... One of the things about one of the thing the thing to remember about Robert H. Barlow, I've told I've I've mentioned that he was like historically gay. We only know this from one source, which is a remarkable thing because Barlow was after Lovecraft's death, he stopped writing fiction because mostly because like all Lovecraft's gang, people like August Derleth and things, were dicks to him, and so he was like, Oh fuck it, I'm going to academia. He became head of anthropology at Mexico City College, where he taught a, I think he taught, or at least was connected to, a young William S. Burroughs, uh, and later committed suicide, allegedly because, um, allegedly because uh, his, he was threatened to be outed by a disgruntled student. It's unclear whether he was, like, having uh, a relationship with that student or something like this, but... Uh, a, a letter written by William S. Burroughs at the time relates, and I'm gonna I'm gonna read this quote in full. Um, J- dated January 11th, a queer professor from KC, Mexico, head of anthropology debt here at MCC brackets Mexico City College, where I collect my $75 a month, knocked himself off a few days ago with an overdose of goofballs, vomit all over the bed. I can't see the suicide kick. Um, so yeah, that's. That's as far as we know whether, you know, Barlow was actually gay. Um, However, Paul Lafarge has decided to run with this. And (laughs) even though, like, I'm not staking personally that Barlow was gay, although I think I would say say at least that it's very interesting if he was. Uh, And thankfully, Paul Lafarge's... I'm just going to come right out and say bad novel... Uh, says in very explicit terms that he was gay and he introduces it through a fictionalized conversation between the protagonist of the novel uh, a kind of researcher into Lovecraft's life later on and um, and a guy called Magnus relating a conversation between himself and Samuel Loveman uh, which is um, and the quote in full is the other thing that makes the episode unfathomable 
is that Howard was 43 when it happened and Bobby was all of 16 and not good looking. You mean they were lovers? Magnus asked. No one knows, Lovman said. No one dared ask Howard and Bar- and no one dared ask Howard and Barlow vanished. I heard he went to Mexico and died there under unhappy circumstances. Oh, Magnus said. If they were lovers, I'm not saying that they were and, and I'm not saying that they were, Lovman continued, then that was the stupidest thing Howard ever did, although in truth it was probably the most endearing thing too. Uh, how do you mean? Magnus asked. Lovecraft patted the stack Loveman patted the stack of books on the desk beside him as though to reassure them of something. Don't you see, he asked, if he really did love Bobby, at least that would mean he was human. And that, Jesus Christ, we've got 10 minutes left. Okay, so that is, that is some, we talked about the fascistic inhumanity of Lovecraft's hyper-conservative, awful worldview. But on the other hand, is there a possibility for the only true... I don't want to say the only truly human relationship he had because his marriage to Sonia Green, which was by all accounts largely happy, economic circumstances uh, notwithstanding, the only the possibility, the only human relationship he had, we had was a pederastic one. Yeah, so that's right there. In, um, and I didn't say it, Paul Lafarge did. Um, but it's very interesting because... Basically, two things. In the book, you know I talked about... Um, Lucy, come on. I'm going okay, to gonna have to hurry. Okay, okay, you're going to have to hurry. But basically, in the book, okay, so uh, uh, when he's researching about the relationship between Barlow and Lovecraft, he talks. He, he finds pages from a diary where they talk in very coded terms in letters to one another about, um, about their fucking, basically. And they use terminology associated with Lovecraftian rituals in a, um, to describe it, you know, they talk about like mutual masturbation as the ACLO ritual, stuff like that. Or, you know, or I, I don't actually know what the acts were, but, but that is something that I touched upon earlier because it's that idea that um, sex was an all too human thing for Lovecraft. And thus, you know, if we go with the Welbeck line, then it was meaningless and insignificant to him. But this is a subversion of that because it means that if in through his relationship with Barlow, he's transcended it. He's ascended this um, very human relationship to something cosmic that he could identify with. Um, and thus it kind of achieves a kind of humanity with that. But my final point on that note is that the story, the great fucking brilliant story they produced together uh, a year before Lovecraft died was the Night Ocean, and I've got yeah I've got nine minutes. The reason this is significant is because the Night Ocean and the Shadow of Rinsmith are almost very very they're almost the same story. It's about someone visiting a seaside town and find and encountering an inhuman entity from the sea. And what I find most profound about this is the fact that. The Shadow Over Innsmouth is the thing that's been picked out above all other Lovecraft stories as having the most demonstrably queer reading to it. We see it in something like um, Sonia Taft's All Our Salt Bottled Hearts, which is a short story about third generation Innsmouth children uh, trying to create a life for themselves. Um, And we see it in uh, the film, the 2006 film Cthulhu that was uh, mentioned in the, which is the focal point of the um h bomber guy video you mentioned right back three hours ago now (laughs) at the beginning the and his thing and the whole thesis of the h bomber guy video is about 
a humanizing love well the the focus of the film cthulhu and why he sees it as significant and why he sees it as the only way to redeem lovecraft in the 21st century is because it's using the axiom of um of the uh, the embracing of one's inhuman status or contra to normal heterosexual society status as a queer liberatory narrative uh and that's you know that's what well that's what h bomber guy flags up but if we see the transition between the shadow over Innsmouth and the night ocean if we see in between that his relationship with um with barlow rendering him human then what we're seeing is um the the creation of a queer story derived from the newly human lovecraft made human by his relationship to robert h barlow and i just think that's very good i think it's pretty profound i think that's a good note to end on but (laughs) i think one thing i want to just end on is a quote from the very end of shadow over innsmouth okay uh so basically the narrative that um of shadow over innsmouth it's a guy who finds out like like arthur german uh that he his um his his lineage is tainted he's fallen from the traditional human state that is the um that is the demonstration of real human civilization as it at its physiological and political peak he's fallen from that because his blood is tainted by that of the deep ones um but the great revelation at the end of that when he discovers his true self as a fish person is to embrace it um and the line that he comes up with is um i shall plan my cousin's escape from that canton madhouse and together we shall go back to marvel shadowed innsmouth we shall swim out to that brooding reef in the sea and dive down through black abysses of many colored either and flay and that layer of the deep ones we shall dwell amidst wonder and glory forever be gay do crimes be gay do crimes that's Lovecraft queer weird signal. Well, this is the start of what is going to be a season of uh, episodes of Queer Signal where we go. Queer Signal! Queer Signal of Weird Signal where we're going to be doing a lot of queer movies, uh, movies with uh, queer themes, uh, and that's going to be the next few months of uh, our lives and by extension your lives as well. Um, this hell was, yeah, buddy. Hell yeah. So this was a really weird, long, intense recording session. We both feel exhausted. I've got a headache. I feel sick. I've <laughs> had three hours sleep. If uh, I will actually say if that because especially considering that we've been like touching on a lot of like very political issues here to do with um, to do with race and to do with multiculturalism. Join your local if Antifa we, faction. Uh, join your local Antifa faction. If us two white people got any shit wrong, which we shouldn't have got wrong, uh, please correct us on this when it comes do to these thing. issues because we uh, we need as much education as anybody else about this. Death to fascism. Death to capitalism be as queer as you can be and on that fucking note keep it weird and stay signal good night good night